The success of your career depends largely upon how well you work with others, how effectively you present your ideas, and how persuasive you are at gathering support and agreement for them. Think about it. Every day you're faced with situations where you need to be able to persuade others. And in each of these encounters, the principles of influence are at work, whether you realize it or not. Yet the power of persuasion and influence is generally misunderstood and misused by most business people. But that doesn't have to be the case. In this program, persuasion expert Dr. Robert Cialdini will explain the principles of influence. He'll show you how to identify them in any given situation and how the principles operate so you won't throw away golden opportunities to influence others. Based on evidence from a large body of social research and on Cialdini's own three-year field study, instant influence will help you get what you ask for while ensuring that those who comply with your requests win too. So let's begin this Dartnell audio program as Dr. Cialdini explains how a little bit of artfully applied influence can make a big difference in your career. I want to talk with you about how to influence people. That's a very broad topic, of course, covering all sorts of situations that you might encounter in your life. But I want to be rather specific about it. I want to focus on influence as it occurs in the workplace. What's more, I want to talk primarily about a particular type of influence, a particular kind of influence that I will call compliance. Compliance refers to the process of getting someone else to say yes to your request. In other words, it's the science of getting what you ask for. And I don't use the term science lightly here because I will be careful to present information to you that I can back up with respected scientific research. As a result, we won't be spending a lot of time discussing my hunches, my guesses, or my speculations. Instead, we'll concentrate on the evidence. Evidence that comes first from a large body of social science research on the subject and second from my own three-year study of why people comply with others' requests in business situations. In that three-year study, I became a spy of sorts, infiltrating as many influence professions as I could get access to. Professions such as sales, fundraising, advertising, marketing, and negotiation. I learned from the inside how people can be led to say yes to requests. Occasionally, I ventured outside of traditional business circles to find out how other influence professionals generated yes responses. I looked to see what political lobbyists did and what cult recruiters did to produce their own brand of powerful influence. I even examined the practices of the con artists of our society to learn what they did to get people to go along with their wishes. And through it all, I watched for commonalities, for parallels, figuring that if I could identify which psychological principles were being used successfully by individuals selling insurance and industrial machinery and computer equipment and portrait photography, and if these were the same principles being used successfully by advertisers and negotiators and fundraisers and recruiters and lobbyists, then I would know something very important. I would know that these must be the most powerful and flexible principles of influence available because these are the principles that work across the widest range of professions, practitioners, and influence opportunities. Well, what are the psychological principles I uncovered in my research? 
What are these universal principles of influence that emerged from my study? To my surprise, I counted only six. And we'll spend the majority of our time examining just what they are, how they work, and how you can use them in a powerful yet completely ethical way. But briefly, the principles are, first, reciprocity, second, scarcity, third, authority, fourth, consensus, fifth, commitment and consistency, and sixth, friendship and liking. Now, I want to be clear about one thing. Just because I think that these are the most effective principles of influence doesn't mean that everybody uses them in the most effective way. Quite the contrary. As I see it, they are used effectively by only a fraction of those who could stand to gain from them. In fact, I have identified three classes of influence agents, people who engage the power of the six principles with varying degrees of success. There are bunglers of influence, there are smugglers of influence, and there are sleuths of influence. Bunglers, smugglers, and sleuths. Let's take each in turn. Bunglers of influence regularly fumble away the chance to benefit from the six principles because they either don't know what the principles are or they don't understand how they work. As a result, bunglers consistently blunder away opportunities to harness the force of the influence process in profitable ways. One of the things I most want to do in this program is to show you how to avoid the bungler's role in the future so that when you come upon an influence situation that has certain of the six principles buried in there with their powerful engines running, you won't walk right by, oblivious to their presence. Now, unlike the bunglers, smugglers of influence know quite well what the six principles are and how they work, but they import the principles illicitly into situations where the principles don't naturally reside and where the principles do not, therefore, steer people correctly about when to say yes. Smugglers trick others into complying by counterfeiting one or another of the six principles of influence that people normally use as guideposts. An example might be when a computer salesman pretends to be an authority on a piece of equipment that a customer is interested in so that the customer will buy from him. The consequence is a very seductive, short-term type of success for the salesman. Because authority works as a principle of influence, smuggling it into a situation can often have direct effects. The initial result is that, typically, only one person will benefit, the smuggler, because the customer will have been led to a choice by someone who's not actually an authority on the matter. The long-term result, however, is that the influence agent will lose in a bigger way than his target. That's certain to be true if, after the sale, the customer catches on to the salesman's smuggling and vows never to do business with that individual or his company again, while warning friends and business associates to do the same. But it will be true even if the customer never learns about the dishonesty. Think about it because he or she has been given a bum steer by the phony authority, it's likely that the computer equipment will prove to be a less than satisfactory purchase, making the customer naturally reluctant to return to that person or that business in the future. Finally, the smuggler is destined to lose in one more way, in self-image. 
Individuals who intentionally and continually take the low road to influence have to change the way they view themselves. They have to assign themselves less integrity, less honor, less moral self-regard. These psychological costs of the smuggler's approach should not be minimized. A job that eats at an individual's self-respect because it involves manipulating and deceiving others is not the kind of job people relish going to in the morning. In fact, it's the kind of job that makes them want to come in late, leave early, call in sick, and ultimately quit. These are hardly the motivations on which long-term productive careers are built. Lastly, there are sleuths of influence who are more knowledgeable than bunglers, more ethical than smugglers, and overall more successful than either. They approach each influence opportunity as a detective would, looking to bring to light only those principles that are truly a part of the situation. By focusing solely on those powerful, enlightening principles that exist naturally in a situation, the sleuth informs the influence target of the genuine decision triggers that are present there. Of course, the more of the big six influence triggers the sleuth can accurately point to, the greater the chance that the target will comply. Suppose, for example, that the marketing manager of a company wanted to convince the overly cautious, tight-fisted company president to okay a large budget for a program that, if enacted quickly, offered a rare opportunity to give the company leadership in an attractive market niche. Let's suppose further that she was recently informed that the company's expert consultants were all in agreement that the proposed move was a good one. What's more, each of the other managers she had talked to within the company shared her view that the time to strike was now or this excellent opportunity could be lost. If, in her presentation to the president, she failed to highlight the components of authority and scarcity and consensus that were true features of the situation, she would not only be fumbling the chance for effective influence, she would be serving her influence target poorly in the process. To make the best decision, her boss needed to be aware of, to be exposed to, all of the influence principles that genuinely applied. If, by missing the chance to be a sleuth of influence, she bungled away her best opportunity for success, she would simultaneously bungle away her boss's best opportunity for success. This overlap between the success of the sleuth of influence and the success of the target of influence operates in another way too, a way that is the real beauty of the approach. The detective route works to the benefit of both parties involved. If, when trying to persuade others, you point them toward the triggers that will guide their decisions correctly, those people are going to do well. As a consequence, they're going to be willing listeners when you return later with other products and services and ideas. You will have laid the groundwork for a long-lasting influence relationship with these people, a relationship that will grow with each successive, mutually rewarding interaction. It's no wonder that I'm so high on the sleuth's approach to influence. It's the one that leads to the win-win arrangements that marketing and management experts are always talking about these days. It's the one that generates the best kind of influence, influence that is effective, ethical, and lasting. Now, before we get off the topic of the most effective agents of influence, let me share with you the single thing in my study that surprised me most.
wouldn't you think that those who are most skilled at getting others to say yes to their requests would spend most of their time structuring those requests? To the contrary, the most accomplished influence pros spend as much or more of their time structuring what they do or say just before they make the request. Often, it's not the request itself that causes people to say yes, it's what goes immediately before it. In other words, the context in which a request is placed can be every bit as effective as the request itself. The real experts of influence work hard at arranging to place each request they make in a favorable psychological context for compliance, a context where people are automatically inclined to say yes. Now, I know that the term psychological context may sound a bit vague and mysterious, so let's make the meaning clear with an example. There is a principle in the psychology of perception called the contrast principle, which governs the way people experience things that are presented to them one after another in succession. For instance, if I had you pick up something heavy, let's say a chair, and then I had you pick up something light, let's say a pencil, you would experience the pencil as lighter than if you hadn't lifted the chair first. In contrast to the heavy object, the light one seems lighter than it actually is. Now, the interesting thing and potentially useful thing about the contrast principle is that it doesn't only work for perceptions of weight. It works for anything you can name. It works for brightness. It works for loudness. It works for the physical attractiveness of the people you're talking with at a cocktail party. If you're talking at a party to some knockout member of the opposite sex and some average-looking member of the opposite sex comes along to join you, you will see that person as less attractive than you normally would. Think of the implications. We can change the way others perceive anything by what we structure for them just before they experience that thing. I bring this idea to my students every year with a little classroom demonstration. I have a student come to the front of the room and sit in front of three buckets of water. One is hot, one is cold, and the one in the middle is at room temperature. The student is told to put one hand in the cold bucket of water, one in the hot, and leave them there for a few seconds. Then he is asked to plunge both hands simultaneously into the bucket of lukewarm water. When he does, you always see the same look of astonishment on his face because the hand that was in the cold water now feels like it's in hot water, and the hand that was in the hot water now feels like it's in cold water. It's exactly the same water. It's at room temperature. The only thing that's changed is what went just before, what went first. Now. How can this concept be applied to a business situation? The Brunswick Corporation is involved in the manufacture and sales of recreational equipment, including billiard tables. Their retail sales managers were concerned about a problem they were having in their billiard table sales outlets. Although table sales were strong, the price of the average table sold was down pretty low in the range of tables they offered. The sales managers were concerned that customers were not buying the higher quality tables they would be most happy with in the long run, and that the company and the retailers were not moving enough of these higher priced units. For someone who knows how the contrast principle works, it wasn't hard to figure out how to solve this problem. 
Frequently, a prospect would come into a store and the following kind of exchange would occur with a salesperson. Hi, can I help you? I hope so. I'm interested in a billiard table for my home. Well, I'm sure we can find something you'll like. We have uh, quite a variety of tables to choose from. Uh, do you know the type and price of table you're looking for? I'm not sure, actually. Okay, uh, then let's just start here with our basic no-frills model and work our way up the line until we hit one that you think meets your budget. Can you see how that approach is a prescription for low price tag sales? By the time the customer gets to the middle of the line, those tables are going to seem pretty expensive, maybe too expensive, in contrast to the very basic model. Compare that to a second approach in which the salesperson shows the top of the line first and then works down. By the time the customer gets to the middle of the line now, those tables are going to seem relatively inexpensive. Fortunately, you don't have to take my word for it. A small experiment was tried at a representative store to test the idea. During one week, all customers were shown the lower end of the price range first and then encouraged to consider the more expensive models, the traditional trading up approach. During the following week, however, the reverse sequence of starting at the top and moving down was employed. Although an equal number of tables was sold in each time period, the average price of a sale during the second week was $450 greater than in the first. Same line of tables, same prices associated with them, the only thing that changed was what went first. Now that you understand some of the overall guiding forces involved, we're going to get down to specifics, namely the six major principles of influence. We'll start with the principle of reciprocity. Whether you realize it or not, the principle of reciprocity is ingrained in you and in everyone else as well. It has a tremendous effect on virtually every decision you make, business-related or otherwise. Mmm, good suggestion to come down here, Jim. They serve a nice lunch. Yeah, they do. The place went downhill a bit last year when the chef left, but they rehired him back, and now it's as good as ever. Mm, well, it was a good call, but I guess I'd better be getting back. Let's get the check. Waiter, could you uh, bring me the bill, please? No, you got it when we went to that Italian place last time. Let me get it this time. No, 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 it's on me. The Italian place was the time before last. You picked up the last one, remember? Here, waiter, I'll waiter, take that. Waiter, no, 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 no. Bring it over here. Sound familiar? The interaction in that little scene is hardly unusual. I'm sure that something like it happens thousands of times every day, and I guess that you've found yourself in a similar kind of exchange more than once. But despite the fact that this type of scene is very common, there is something strange about it. According to basic economic theory, it shouldn't happen. Because we're supposed to be principally concerned with maximizing our material self-interest. In other words, with accumulating and possessing hard resources and money. What's going on here? Obviously, there is something at work besides simple economic principles. To figure out what it is, we need to put on our Sherlock Holmes caps and solve a different mystery. At least it was a mystery to me when a few years ago I came across a newspaper article reporting a gift of $5,000 of humanitarian aid that went between the countries of Mexico on the one hand and Ethiopia on the other. Now, at the time of this article, and perhaps still today, Ethiopia could fairly lay claim to the greatest need, suffering, and privation of any country in the world. 
Its people were dying in agony by the hundreds, daily, of sicknesses and starvation. Its relief agencies were crying out to the rest of the world, begging for money, medicine, food, and supplies. I wasn't surprised then that $5,000 in aid was being sent between Mexico and Ethiopia. I was shocked, though when I read further into the article to learn that the money had not gone to Ethiopia at all, but had gone in the other direction from Ethiopia to Mexico to help the victims of the Mexico City earthquake that year. Well, how do you explain that? The only way I know is through the first major principle of influence, the first major decision trigger that I want to talk about, the rule for reciprocation which says that you are obligated to give back to others the form of behavior that they have given to you. If someone gives you a gift, you should give that person a gift. If somebody invites you to a party, you should put that person's name on your guest list when you throw a party. If someone does you a favor, you should do that person a favor in return. That is so because of something we've all been trained in since childhood. You do not take without giving in return in this society. Actually, at least in our country, the idea goes back even farther than that. The early pioneers and settlers had to help each other. It was a matter of simple survival. When the farmer down the road needed to get his barn up before the winter came, everyone pitched in to help. You went down there to lend a hand, knowing that next year, if you needed to get help getting your crops in, everyone would come to help you out. And it wasn't just the farmers who did this, this was the attitude of society in general. So that idea that we all learned in childhood has a long tradition behind it. You do not take without giving in return. If you do, we have names for you. Welsher, taker, ingrate. These are labels we don't want others to apply to us, and they're labels we don't want to apply to ourselves either. As a result, we will go to great lengths to make sure that we give back when we receive. This rule is so strong that it even covers the things we get from people we don't know. Let's take an example that if you've traveled in airports of this country, I'm sure you recognize the Hare Krishna Society is an ages-old religious organization. You can trace their roots back to the Indian city of Calcutta, ancient city, but they have a much more recent history here in the United States beginning with one center in New York City in 1968, when, if you remember what the Krishnas looked like in 1968, it was very different from the way they look now. They set up their center, and to fund their organization, they would move down a city street in groups, chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, dressed in loose-fitting robes, leg wrappings, bells, beads, chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, until they came to a passerby, they would stop this person and they would say, would you give a donation for our society? Well, the average New Yorker <laughs> took one look at this motley crew and said, get out of here. The Krishna's solution was brilliant. They hit on a way to make a request in which a person who doesn't even like the requester still feels compelled to comply with the request. Now, before they ask for a donation, they give you something. 
It can be a book, a magazine, but in the most cost-effective version, it's a flower. They approach you in a public place, airports are a favorite, and they pin a flower on your lapel, or they push a flower into your hand. And if you say, no thanks, I don't want this, here, take it back, they respond, oh no, that is our gift to you. However, if you would like to give a donation for the good works of the society, that would be greatly appreciated. I watched the Kreisnas operate in O'Hare Airport for an entire day, and what I saw was a remarkable testament to the power of the rule for reciprocation. People who didn't want this flower, who didn't ask for it, still didn't feel that they could just walk away with it without giving in return. So what they did, not all of them of course, but many of them, was to reach into a pocket or a purse, come up with a couple of dollars, and give them to the Krishna solicitor. And then they felt free to walk away. I followed a number of them to see what they did with the flower, and it was always the same. They threw it in the first waste container they came to. Isn't that interesting? This thing they just bought, just spent good money for, was jettisoned at first opportunity. What sense does that make? Well, it doesn't make any sense, once again, from the standpoint of basic principles of economics. It only makes sense when we realize that those people had not really bought the flower. They didn't want the flower in the first place. But what they had done was to buy their way out of a rule that says, you don't take without giving in return. It was worth good money to them not to have to suffer the feelings of debt and social discomfort associated with breaking that rule. As it happens, the Krishnas understand very well that the tendency to repay gifts and favors applies even to those gifts and favors we don't want. I know that to be true because while I was watching the Krishna solicitors work in O'Hare, I would occasionally follow one of them who was sent to resupply the cache of flowers they were using. Well, the supply route turned out to be a garbage route. The Krishna would make a tour of the trash containers in the airport to pick out all those discarded flowers and cycle them back through the donation request process again. No telling how many times the same carnation would produce a profit. Here's something else I saw that was interesting. Some airport visitors who received a flower would try to escape the reciprocity rule by throwing the flower to the ground. If the Krishna would not accept it back, they'd say, okay, if you won't take it, I'm throwing it on the ground here. I don't have it now. I haven't kept it. It's not in my possession anymore. And then they felt free to walk away. Well, you know what the Krishnas are doing in some cities to counteract that strategy? They're now pinning small American flags on the lapels of passers-by because they know that Americans won't throw their flag on the ground. They want us locked in the jaws of that rule because in the context of obligation, people simply say yes. Notice something else about the Krishna's approach to compliance in all of this. It's clearly a smuggler's approach. They import a feeling of obligation into a situation where it doesn't naturally exist so they can exploit it for one-sided benefit. They get money, which they do want, and their targets get flowers, which they don't want. 
However, as is always the case with smugglers of influence, the self-defeating, long-term consequences of their tactics have begun to take over. Suppose you were burned by one of the Krishna solicitors, or suppose you had merely seen or heard about somebody else being burned. What would you do the next time you saw a Krishna coming? You'd go the other way, right? Or you'd prepare to reject or deflect the approach. Well, that's exactly what's been happening lately. Nobody will take a flower anymore. Once people are exposed to their tricks, they won't deal with the Krishnas any longer. And the proceeds from the Krishnas' fundraising activity are plummeting. But that's to be expected because eventually, consistent smugglers are recognized for what they are. And once caught, their chances for further profitable dealings with an individual go right out the window. Fortunately, the use of the reciprocity rule is not limited to the smugglers of our society. As detectives of influence, we can find it existing naturally in many work situations. It's just waiting for us to uncover and then harness its power in ways that lead to continuing influence. For example, good before and after the sale service is the kind of thing that a sleuth of influence can use to increase customer loyalty. The customer feels that it's only right to repay that kind of service with continued business. And we must not underestimate the strength of the desire to repay. When I go into a store where the people work hard to serve me well, I feel I owe it to them to come back by the reciprocity rule. They've done something good for me. I should do the same for them. They haven't just attracted my future business by their actions. They've come to deserve it. Of course, if we do engage the force of the reciprocity rule by providing good service, everybody wins. The customer wins, the salesperson wins, the store manager wins, the owners win. Win, 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 win. Beautiful. A similar kind of everybody wins arrangement that is based on the reciprocity rule can be seen in the approach that an acquaintance of mine uses in her sales position. She sells radio advertising time on the station she works for to a large range of clients. My friend has the reputation of being the best radio advertising salesperson in the city. She's frequently being offered attractive positions at rival radio stations and is always rising to the top of the sales staff at whichever station employs her. When I asked her how she did it, she described one thing that made me recognize her as an expert detective of influence. Because she has clients in a variety of businesses, she is always on the lookout for any business leads that she can pass on to them. If, for example, she learns through her contacts in the food industry that a new supermarket chain is thinking of moving into town, she instantly calls all of her clients who could profit from that information. The construction companies, the realtors, the banks, the advertising firms. Any of her customers who can send out salespeople to try to get the new supermarket chain's business before their competitors do. She reports that the gratitude that she gets is immediate and that the obligation her clients feel to her is long-term, especially among those who actually land the chain's account. They do everything they can to return the favor by giving her all of their business that they can possibly justify. The same sort of reciprocal arrangements apply virtually everywhere. If you're a manager, you know the value of having positive attitudes and personal relationships in the workplace. Now, 
Think of the advantages of understanding the rule for reciprocity in the achievement of those goals. Because people give back what they've received, it means that you can increase the level of whatever you want from coworkers and employees by giving it first. If you want information, you provide it to them first. If you want to create a feeling of trust, you offer it first. If you want to foster a cooperative attitude, you show it first. By acting first, you get to set the tone for the type of workplace relations you want. Let's take information sharing as an example. There are experts who argue that we have now gotten to the point in modern business where an information edge is the single most valuable advantage we can possess. What's more, it's true that in any business office, a manager will be able to plan, execute, and complete tasks more successfully to the degree that he or she has access to the necessary information. The research tells us that there is a straightforward way for the manager to get that necessary information by providing the amount, the level, and the quality of information he or she wants. The manager will get the amount, level, and quality of desired information in return. And it will flow naturally. No need for any arm twisting or surveillance. It will flow naturally because, as the research clearly shows, information disclosure is a reciprocal thing. And of course, when the necessary information is being sent and received in an office, everybody wins, particularly the manager. Now, I'll be the first to admit that while the reciprocity rule will work naturally in the great majority of cases, there may be certain people who don't seem to want to pay back what they've gotten from others. Those people may need a little extra nudge before they play by the rules. Let's take an example. Suppose you're a manager who's been pretty easygoing with one particular employee who often needs to take time off for personal reasons. Maybe he's had to pick up his wife at the airport or to take a child to the dentist, things like that. Yet, whenever you ask this employee to give you some extra time when you need it by working through lunch or coming in early or staying late, he invariably refuses. Now, one way to handle this would be to stop granting this person any more time off. But that could lead to a problem if he simply doesn't recognize that all you're asking for is a fair trade. He might see himself as entitled to a little free time for personal business, but may not see you as entitled to any of his time beyond working hours. So, you may have to make the fairness of the trade clearer for this type of person than you would for most people. The next time he asks to leave work an hour early for some unexpected personal reason, you may want to say, sure. Glad to let you have an hour for something unexpected because I know how important it is for me to be able to count on you to give me an extra hour when something unexpected comes up here. This way, without being unkind, you've let him know that helpfulness, like everything else, is a two-way street. Okay. At the beginning of this program, I said that, in addition to discussing how you can use the big six principles of influence, we would also cover how you could avoid falling into influence traps where these principles can be used against you. Let's take a look at how easily you can be trapped into making a poor decision out of a sense of personal obligation that springs from the reciprocity principle. Suppose you're a manager in charge of a good-sized department where you work, 
and for some reason you're going to need a ride to and from the office for several days. Maybe your car's in the shop for a week or something like that. So you ask one of the people working under you for a lift because you know that he has to go only slightly out of his way to pass your house. And this guy says, sure, I'll be glad to do it. Everything goes smoothly that week. He leaves home a little early each day to pick you up and gets home a little later each day to drop you off. He even hangs around work for an extra half hour one day to accommodate your need to clean up some paperwork before you leave. Now, ten days later, it's time for you to fill out the performance evaluations for your department and you come to this guy's name. What's more, you know that he's one employee being considered for a promotion to a better job with a higher salary. It's between him and another slightly more qualified member of your department. What are you going to do? Well, if you're human, you're going to feel the pressure of the reciprocity rule. You're going to feel the pull of that nice favor he did for you, of that unfulfilled obligation, and you're probably going to give him a higher rating than he actually deserves. That's the kind of trap people fall into all the time, making a poor business decision based on emotional considerations like personal obligations. How do we avoid making that kind of mistake in this instance? I think we do it by recognizing exactly what it is that the reciprocity rule says we should do and should not do when repaying favors. Remember that the rule says that we are obligated to give back to others the type of behavior they have given to us. To me, that means if someone does us a personal favor, we owe a personal favor in return. We shouldn't allow ourselves to be trapped into providing a business favor instead. So, in the ride-sharing example, there would be something you could have done first to free yourself from the power of the rule when it came time to fill out the performance evaluation forms. Before you ever got to the point of filling out those forms, you could have repaid the gracious personal favor you had received with a gracious personal favor of your own. Of course, the exact nature of the return gift is not important. It could have just as easily been a pair of tickets to a play or sports event that you know that your employee would enjoy. The important point is that in the workplace, you remember to repay personal favors with personal favors and to reserve business favors for business favors. Mixing the two usually leads to bad business decisions. So far in our discussion of reciprocity, we've talked about replacing smuggler strategies with sleuth strategies. Now I'd like to talk about how to do the same thing for the bungler's approach. I've noticed that far too often people fumble away legitimate opportunities, priceless opportunities for influence, simply because they didn't realize how they could use the altogether healthy reciprocal exchanges that are an inherent part of their relationships and their business lives. Here's a situation I'll bet you found yourself in many times. Let's say you get a call from somebody you work with a lot in your job. It could be someone in another department of your company, it could be a supplier, but for the moment, let's say it's a distributor of your product that your company depends on. And let's even say that it's a distributor who hasn't been all that dependable in the past. So this distributor calls you up to ask you for a favor, a big favor. And you agree to help by doing whatever has to be done. 
Maybe you have to drop what you're doing and perform an analysis of some complicated data. Maybe you have to come in early and stay late for several days. Maybe you have to drive way across town to personally pick up some paperwork. Whatever it is, you get it done. Now, a day later, the distributor calls you up to thank you. And how many times have you heard yourself bungle away that crucial moment, that priceless, that powerful influence instant by saying something like, Ah, it's no big deal, just part of the job. Or, Oh, don't think a thing about it. I'd do it for anybody. Or, Hey, don't worry about it. That's what I'm here for, right? Oh, it pains me whenever I hear something like that happen. There you are with one of the most potent triggers of influence of our society in your hands and you fumble it away. Remember now, this is a trigger of influence that you've come to possess fairly. You haven't smuggled it in. You haven't counterfeited it. You haven't fabricated its presence in the situation. You've earned it. And here's something else. By not participating in the power of that moment, you do everyone a disservice. That's so because our society, our organizations, our relationships work better when those who do genuine favors are rewarded with opportunities for genuine favors in return. Think about it for a minute. If people who did favors for others never got anything back, they'd be less inclined to do favors in the future. As a consequence, pretty soon, nobody would be doing anybody favors anymore. That would be a sorry state of affairs in any group. So, in order for the system to work properly, we have to be able to acknowledge and accept what we deserve. But here's the trick. We have to be able to do so gracefully. All right, fine. But how do you do that when the distributor, or anyone for that matter, calls you up to say thanks for the break-your-back favor you just did? Well, one thing you don't do is say, yeah, and you owe me one now, buster. That's sure to produce nothing but resentment and resistance. Instead, here's what I think you should say after that individual thanks you. You say, listen, you'd do the same for me. You'd do the same for me. With that one statement, you will have accomplished a lot. First of all, you won't have made the blunder of dismissing or diminishing what you've done. And you won't have overblown it either, or made it a cause for friction between the two of you. But you will have recorded the fact that you indeed did perform that sizable favor. And you will have sent the message that you know the recipient of your favor to be the kind of person who plays fairly by the rules of our society. And that means, of course, that when you need a big favor, that person should say yes to you. Just communicating that message will make all the difference. Now, the next time you need a big favor from that distributor, you've got an ace in the hole. Maybe you need to get pushed ahead a few pages toward the front of their catalog. Maybe you've suddenly found out you won't have enough product to fill their latest order, and you need a couple of extra days, even though you're contractually obligated to deliver on time. You can go to that distributor you helped, that person whose obligation you did not lightly dismiss, and you can expect him to give you the vital yes or the help that you need. Here's something besides. After you've used your you do the same for me line, 
you can wait a long time to call in your favor. How do I know that? I know that by solving the mystery of the $5,000 of Ethiopian aid we puzzled over at the beginning of this program. I consider myself a social scientist. And if there's one thing that gets me going, gets my motor running, it's some aspect of human behavior that I can't explain. I feel driven to find out the answer. Well, that's what happened to me after I read the newspaper account of the gift of humanitarian aid sent by the Ethiopian Relief Agency to the victims of the Mexico City earthquake. I got physically agitated. I felt that I had to figure out the cause of this strange behavior. So I went to the library to see if there was anything else that had been written about the gift. As it turned out, there was a journalist who had the same reaction as I had had about it all. And he went to the leader of the Ethiopian Relief Agency and asked the crucial question. Why, when your own people are suffering miserably, dying in agony for the want of food and medicine, would you take $5,000 of your resources and give them to Mexico? And the answer came back clearly, because in 1935, when Italy invaded Ethiopia, Mexico helped us. Fifty years later, transcending the greatest national need, privation, and suffering in the world, the rule for reciprocity triumphed. For those of us who want to maximize our effectiveness as agents of influence, this is not something to be bungled away. The city of Mesa, Arizona is a suburb in the Phoenix area where I live. Perhaps the most notable features of Mesa are its sizable Mormon population, next to Salt Lake City, the largest in the world, and a huge Mormon temple located on exquisitely kept grounds in the center of the city. Even though I admired the landscaping and architecture from a distance, I had never been interested enough in the temple to go inside until one day when I read a newspaper article describing a special inner sector of Mormon temples where no one is allowed except faithful members of the church. Even potential converts must not see it. However, there is one exception to this rule. For a few days after a temple has been built, non-members can tour the entire structure, including the restricted section. The newspaper story went on to report that the Mesa Temple had recently undergone major renovations and that the changes had been so great that it had been classified as new by church leaders. That meant that for the next few days only, non-Mormon visitors could see the temple area that was traditionally banned to them. I immediately decided to take a tour, and I called a Mormon friend to see if he wanted to join me. The conversation that followed taught me something valuable about the next major principle of influence I want to cover, the principle of scarcity. Hello? Jack, this is Bob Cialdini. Listen, I just saw an article in the paper that says the entire Mormon temple in Mesa is going to be open to visitors for the next couple of days. So I'm going to go over and take a tour today. You want to come along? No, I think I'll pass. I've got some errands I really should get to. But I'm curious, why do you want to go over there? You have some interest in the Mormon religion that I don't know about? No, I can't say that I do. What is it then? Some general interest in church architecture? No, 
It's just that the special intersection of the temple will be open to non-Mormons for a few days, and then it'll be closed to me forever. Well, what is it exactly that you expect to see there? I've been in it myself, and there's nothing more spectacular or stirring than you'd see in any number of churches and cathedrals in town. You, you know, you may be right, Jack. Uh, there's nothing in particular that I want to see. I guess I just want to be able to be there, just to be able to stand on that spot sometime in the next couple of days, because if I don't now, I'll never be able to. When I hung up the phone, I realized that I had admitted something very instructive to Jack and to myself. And that was how powerful an effect the principle of scarcity had on me. This place that on its own merits held no special appeal for me became much more attractive merely because it was rapidly becoming less available. A look at the relevant research shows that I'm far from alone in this respect. Just about everyone finds opportunities that are rare or dwindling in their availability more attractive simply because of their scarcity. One study done in North Carolina demonstrated how this principle works in a consumer preference test of chocolate chip cookies. Participants in the study were given a jar of chocolate chip cookies to taste and rate. For some of them, there were 10 cookies in the jar. For others, the jar contained only two cookies. Despite the fact that all the cookies had come from the same Nabisco box, the people who got only two cookies rated them as more desirable to eat in the future, more attractive as a consumer item, and able to command a higher price in the store than did people who got ten of those same identical cookies. A report of the cookie study appeared in a prominent psychology journal in 1975. Remember at the start of this program, I mentioned how very often important results like this one sit in the scientific journals unused for years. Well, I have a hunch that the Coca-Cola company wished that it had paid attention to these findings when, ten years after they appeared, it began what Time magazine calls the marketing fiasco of the decade. On April 23, 1985, the company decided to pull their traditional formula for Coke off the market and replace it with new Coke. I'm sure you remember what happened that day. It was the day that the syrup hit the fan. In the words of one news report, quote, the Coca-Cola company failed to foresee the sheer frustration and fury its action would create. From Bangor to Burbank, from Detroit to Dallas, tens of thousands of Coke lovers rose up as one to revile the taste of the new Coke and demand their old Coke back. The best example is a man who lived in Seattle named uh, Gay Mullins, a retired real estate uh, investor, who became so incensed that his beloved soft drink was going to be pulled off the market, that he formed an organization called the Old Cola Drinkers of America, who filed a class action suit against the Coca-Cola company to make the recipe public, who issued banners and buttons and t-shirts, sent them out by the thousand free of charge to anybody who wanted to be in their organization, had a hotline for disgruntled callers and for clinically depressed callers so that they could be counseled out of their post-Coke depression, a different kind of Coke. It did not matter that in two blind taste tests, Mr. Mullins chose the new Coke over the old. 
Isn't that amazing? The thing that Mr. Mullins liked more was less valuable to him than the thing he was being denied. It's worth noting that even after giving in to customer demands and bringing the old Coke back to the shelves, company officials were stung and somewhat bewildered by what had hit them. As Donald Keough, then president of the company, said, It's a wonderful American mystery, a lovely American enigma, and you can't measure it any more than you can measure love, pride, or patriotism. Here's where I disagree with Mr. Keough. First of all, it's no mystery. Not if you understand the psychology of the scarcity principle. Especially when a product is as wrapped up in a person's history and traditions as Coca-Cola has always been in this country, of course that person is going to want it more as it becomes less available. Second, this urge is something that can be measured. In fact, I happen to think that the Coca-Cola company had measured it in their own market research prior to making their infamous decision to change. But they didn't see it there because they weren't looking for it the way a detective of influence would. The people in the Coca-Cola company are no penny pinchers when it comes to market research. They have been willing to spend millions of dollars to assure that they have analyzed the market correctly for a new product. And in their decision to switch to the new Coke, they were no different. From 1981 to 1984, they very carefully tested the new and old formulas in taste tests involving nearly 200,000 people in 25 cities. What they found in their blind taste tests was a clear preference, 55% to 45%, for the new Coke over the old. Also, some of the tests were not conducted with unmarked samples. In those tests, the participants were told which was the old and which was the new Coke beforehand. Under those conditions, the preference for the new Coke increased by an additional 6%. Now, you might say, that's strange. How does that fit with the fact that people expressed a decided preference for the old Coke when the company finally introduced the new Coke? The only way it fits is by applying the principle of scarcity to the puzzle. During the taste tests, it was the new Coke that was unavailable to people for purchase. And so, when they knew which sample was which, they showed an especially strong preference for what they couldn't otherwise have. But later, when the company replaced the traditional recipe with the new one, now it was the old Coke that people couldn't have, and it became the favorite. My point is that the 6% increase in preference for the new Coke was right there in the company's research when they looked at the difference between blind taste test results and identified taste test results. But they interpreted it wrong. They said to themselves, oh good, this means that when people know that they're getting something new, their desire for it will shoot up. But in fact, what the 6% increase really meant was that when people know what they can't have, their desire for it will shoot up. One lesson that we can learn from this is that people are more motivated by the thought of losing something than they are by the thought of gaining something. This means that when you're trying to get someone interested in what you have to offer, it's not enough to talk about the benefits of your product or idea. You must also highlight its unique features those advantages that the other person will stand to lose by not choosing your product or idea. So, 
Let's say you're in sales and you've got a customer who just can't seem to make up his mind on whether to buy from your company. A customer who keeps procrastinating on the decision. Before your next call on this individual, you need to stop and think not just about what he can gain from going with your product, but what he stands to lose by failing to do so. Those unique features or that unique combination of features, service, and terms that he can't get elsewhere. Do you recall the cookie experiment I talked about a few minutes ago? There was one other finding in that study that I haven't told you about yet. Remember how some participants got 10 cookies and others got only two cookies? Well, some of those people who got only two cookies to taste and rate were first given 10 cookies by the experimenter. He then came back to them and said, Oh, sorry, I can't give you those 10 cookies after all. There's been such a demand for cookies by the other participants in the study that I can only give you two of them. And with that, he replaced the jar of 10 cookies with a jar of just two. Well, when these people rated the cookies, they evaluated them as more attractive than any other participants did in the entire experiment. What this finding tells us is there is a factor that intensifies the impact of scarcity on the judgments that people make. Yes, people value scarce resources more than abundant ones, but this is especially true when they are in competition with others for those scarce resources. Competition, rivalry for scarce items and opportunities can make people lose all sense of perspective and go slightly loco. What about you? Have you ever found yourself raising the ante and raising the ante against some rival for a business opportunity until you emerge the winner and then the dust settled and you realize that in the end you hadn't won a good business opportunity? All you had won was a battle? How do you learn to avoid that kind of poor judgment? The big problem is, just at the time when you want to be rational and logical, the head-to-head -head competition you're in is making your emotions rise, your focus narrow, and your blood come up. Logic goes right out the window. Here's what I'd suggest to handle the problem. Instead of letting this sweep of emotion lead you into making poor decisions, use it to lead you to good ones. Whenever you feel yourself experiencing a rush of competitive emotion in a situation involving a scarce resource or opportunity, use that feeling as a signal to stop short. Use it as a kind of yellow flag, cautioning you to slow down, to calm yourself, so that you can bring rationality and logic back into the picture. Then, assess the situation based on the genuine merits of the opportunity before you. This way, you'll win more than a contested deal. You'll win what you were looking for all along, the right deal. Let's say you're in a situation in which a particular customer is playing you and a competitor against one another. He keeps asking for concession after concession from each of you to stay in the running for his contract. And he makes a point of informing each of you every time the other makes a better offer. As soon as you feel yourself getting frustrated and agitated, it's time to use those feelings to step back away from the situation rather than to plunge into it with an increased fury and desire to beat your rival. Step back and calculate whether winning in this instance would amount to losing and whether the rational thing would be to walk away, leaving what's now become a bad business deal to your opponent.
if with a now clear head you can see that the benefits of the business aren't worth the costs, and if you do walk away, you will have one. After all, leaving the unfavorable deals to your competitors is one of the surest ways to triumph over them. We've all been in situations where we're holding off making a decision. We just hadn't quite made the commitment yet. The following scene points out just how powerful a motivator the principle of scarcity can be in these situations. Hello? Hello, Tom. This is Ann Anderson down at Smith Realty. Oh, hi, Ann. Uh, you got another house to show me, huh? No, actually, I'm calling with some information about that place I showed you last week over on Broadway that you like so much. Oh, yeah, I loved it. Uh, everything but the price. Uh, did the owners come down? Unfortunately, no. Hmm. And I know that the last time we talked about it, you wanted to hold off on making a decision because you weren't sure you wanted to go that high. Yeah, I just don't know if I want to be saddled with the mortgage payments that would involve. I was hoping they'd come down. No luck, huh? No, but I just got some new information that I figured you'd want to know. Oh, what's that? Well, my manager, Trish, is familiar with the house. And she says that yesterday it was shown to a doctor who's interested enough to want to see it again this weekend, this time with his wife. Trish thinks that if the wife likes it, they're going to make an offer at very close to the asking price. What does that mean for me? Well, it's completely up to you, of course, but we've still got three days before the weekend. And I think that if you can get an offer to the owners that's $8,000 below their price, they'll take it. That's still more than I wanted to pay, Anne. Mm, but I really do like the house. Uh, you say this couple is a doctor and his wife, huh? They've probably got all the money in the world to spend. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I can't tell you what to do. That's got to be your decision. But I do know this. Time may well be running out. Uh, what do you want me to say to the owners? Mm. Okay, let's go for it. Make them the offer. As I'm sure you recognize, in that little scene, Anne, the real estate agent, employed the combination of scarcity plus rivalry to motivate her client, Tom, to make a decision. And there's no question that she was effective with it. But in addition to her effectiveness, let's talk about the ethics of what she did. What do you think? Did she behave properly or improperly from an ethical standpoint? For me, that depends on whether she acted like a smuggler or a sleuth. If the information she transmitted to Tom was true, there is no ethical impropriety at all in the fact that she acted like a detective to uncover the real facts and bring them to Tom's attention. As long as competition for this scarce resource was a genuine part of the situation, I don't think she can be faulted for alerting Tom to it. In fact, if she hadn't pointed it out, she would have been a bungler, doing herself and her company and Tom a disservice in the process. If I really loved a house I had seen, but was waiting to see if the owners would cut their price before deciding on it, I would be outraged at my real estate agent if she didn't tell me what Anne told Tom. So from my point of view anyway, Anne is only to be commended for her sleuth-like approach to the situation. The situation becomes quite different, however, if the information was untrue. If Anne manufactured the story of the doctor and his wife to spook Tom into making a decision to buy the house. Under those circumstances, with a powerful principle of influence smuggled into a setting where it doesn't naturally exist, I have to see Anne's ethics in the matter as shameful. And, as is the case with all smugglers' tactics that are effective in the short run, I think Anne is going to pay a steep price in the long run. That's going to be true in two ways, financially 
and personally. Let's take the financial side first. Before long, Anne and the realty company that trained her or just allowed her to fool her clients in this way will become identified with the trickery. It could happen in a hundred ways, all made possible by the fact that the world is a very small place. Here's an example. Suppose the night after making his offer on the house, Tom goes to a party thrown by one of his friends from work. Still wrapped up in thinking about the new house, he mentions his offer and the circumstances surrounding it to a group of people gathered around the buffet table. So I made the offer, and uh, I'm just waiting to see if the owners will go for it. My real estate agent told me to put a short fuse on my offer so that it's only good until Saturday. Now that's when this other couple is scheduled to see the place, and well, we want the owners to have to decide before then. Hey, let me ask you something, Tom. Yeah. Your agent wouldn't happen to be Ann Anderson, would it? Oh, as a matter of fact, it is. How would you know? Oh, because we used her, too, when we moved to town last year. Uh-huh. And the story she gave you sounds just like the one she gave us. Oh. We wound up not taking the bait because a friend of my husband had had a problem with another agent from the realty company she works for, um, Smith Realty, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, we eventually decided to go with another realtor. But let me ask you one more thing. Yeah. This guy who likes the house and is bringing his wife to see it on Saturday, mm -hmm. he wouldn't happen to be a doctor, would he? As a matter of fact... Wait a minute. You you mean... I'm going to check this out. If she's lied to me, I'm withdrawing my offer. But you can't do that, Tom. Not without losing your earnest money deposit. How much did you put down? 500 bucks, but I don't care. If she's been putting one over on me, there's no way I'm going to let her get a commission on this deal. No way at all. And I'm going to make her sorry she ever tried this scam. Oh, boy. I'm going to scream to the Better Business Bureau. I'm going to yell at her boss. I'm going to holler to the state licensing board. I'm going to be on the phone to Claire Thomas. Claire Thomas? Down at work? Yeah. Well, why would you call her? Because she's the one who handles all of our personnel transfers and relocations. Yeah. A lot of times when new employees come in from out of town, they'll ask Claire for advice on realty companies to help them find a house. Mm. I'll make sure no one coming into our company ever hears the name of Ann Anderson or Smith Realty again. Not in a favorable way, anyhow. I'll tell you what. I'd hate to be in Anne's smuggler's shoes after Tom checks and discovers that she was trying to influence him with a fabricated competitor. He's mad enough to do everything in his power to damage the financial prospects and reputation of Anne and the company she works for, now and into the future. It's the smuggler's legacy, short-term monetary gain, long-term monetary loss. But remember, that when we began talking about the negative consequences of the smuggler's approach to influence, we said that it led to more than just long-run financial damage. We said that it also led to long-run personal damage. I'm referring to a person's self-respect. Let's stay with Anne, the real estate agent, for a while, and let's suppose for a moment that she was never caught at her scarcity plus rivalry trick, that neither Tom nor any other of her clients ever associated her with this deceptive practice. Under those circumstances, wouldn't it seem that the smuggler's route would have paid off to Anne, as well as to the company that employed her? Not if we recognize the damage to her self-image that her dishonesty would most likely cause. To the degree that she regularly engaged in a planned program of deceit with her prospects, her view of herself would have to change. Maybe without even being aware of it, she'd have to question her morality, her integrity, her honor, assigning herself less of each. 
As I said before, these psychological costs should not be minimized. We can all attest to the importance of feeling good about ourselves. I also mentioned before that there's another financial price to pay as well, and I'm going to repeat it here because it's so important. This price is paid not only by Anne, but by any company that trained or allowed her to work as a smuggler in its behalf. A job that eats at an individual's self-respect because it involves the deceptive manipulation and exploitation of others would not be the sort of job most people would look forward to going to in the morning. In fact, in the face of that sort of job, most people would want to come in late, they'd want to leave early, they'd call in sick at the slightest opportunity, eventually they'd just quit. Those are hardly the motivations on which productive, profitable, and stable careers or companies are built. I know that was true in the case of my brother Richard. He had a remarkably successful used car sales business, although it wasn't exactly what you'd call a traditional used car business. Here's what happened. My brother worked his way through school selling used cars, not from a dealership, not from a lot. He would buy a couple of cars that were advertised in the newspaper one weekend. He'd add nothing but soap and water and sell them for a two to three hundred dollar profit a piece the following weekend. How did he get people to spend two or three hundred dollars more per car than he spent? He had to know about the principle of scarcity. Let's talk about scarcity. First of all, he knew how to buy a car at the bottom of its blue book value so that he could legitimately advertise it for two to three hundred dollars above what he paid for it and it would still be within the blue book range. He was a good judge of cars. He knew how to do that. Secondly, he knew how to write an ad so that people would call and inquire about the car at that price. But thirdly, he knew how to make those cars seem like scarce resources that his prospects were interested in and competing against. Let's say four people called on Sunday morning. Here's what he would do. Let's say the first person called. He would say, sure, come on over. Uh, when would be convenient? 11 o'clock, that's fine. When the second person called, he'd schedule that person for 11 o'clock. And the third person and the fourth person and all four people were scheduled at 11 o'clock. And it happened every time. The first person would come usually a few minutes early, drive up and start doing normal car buying behavior, kicking the tires, slamming the doors, maybe pointing out a rust spot or two, maybe even negotiating on the price for a bit until the second driver pulled up and the psychology of that situation changed abruptly. This wasn't an ordinary car anymore to be decided upon at leisure. This was a scarce resource that these people were in competition against one another for. And the first person would often say to the second one, now wait a minute, I was here first. I should get to decide if I want. If he didn't, my brother would do it for him. He'd say to the second person, uh, excuse me, sir, but this gentleman was here before you. If he decides to buy my car at my price, I will have to sell it to him. However, if he doesn't want my car at my price, then I'd be glad to show it to you. In the meantime, would you mind standing on the other side of the driveway? Banished to the peripheries, this guy. He's over here now. And you can see him. 
You can see it. He, he's leaning. You know, he's poised. He's waiting. This, the first guy for his part, now here's this lurking newcomer waiting for him to decide. And now the third and the fourth buyers drive up. Bang! Something happens. The first guy buys the car on the spot and never dreams to negotiate on the price. Because there are three people waiting for that car at that price right there. Or he can't take the stacked up competition and he just abruptly leaves the scene at which point the second guy pounces because there are two lurking newcomers waiting for him to decide. My brother would always sell that car. Now, let's talk about Richard's ethics in all of this. The situation's a little more gray than that of Anne, the real estate agent, because after all, he never actually lied to anyone about the amount of demand there was for what he had to offer. Still, when we think about it, we can see that he was acting like a smuggler, importing the impression that there was a level of demand for his car that simply wasn't the case. He had potential buyers saying to themselves, Good Lord, people are flocking here to get this car at this price. If there are four people who are here this moment, think of all the people in the city who must be interested in this deal. What they didn't know was that there were only four people in the city who were interested in that deal, but Richard had arranged for them to get there at the same time. As far as I know, my brother was never caught at his little tactic. But one day, he just stopped using it. I remember asking him about it years later, and he said that, yeah, he was making good money with it, but that he just didn't like fooling people all the time. He didn't like the way it made him feel about himself. And he didn't like the way it made his friends think about him. Although they never said so, Richard thought that they were a little standoffish to him while he was making money this way. Maybe figuring that if he was willing to trick other people all the time, he'd be willing to trick them someday, too. And so he just stopped. The monetary benefits simply weren't worth the personal costs. As I think about the situation these days, it occurs to me that being a smuggler of influence wasn't my brother's only option back then. He could have been a sleuth of influence instead. After all, there were four people interested enough in the car at his price to want to see it. There's no reason why he should be required to bungle away that influential piece of information. He could have used that genuine fact in a way that was both effective and completely ethical. Here's what he could have done when those four interested parties called on Sunday morning. When the first prospect called, Richard could have said, Yes, that car is still available. When would you like to see it? 11 o'clock? Fine. See you then. And when the second prospect called, he could have said, sure, come over at your convenience, but I should tell you that there's someone already scheduled at 11. And when the third buyer called, he could be told about the 11 o'clock and the 10.30 appointments. And when the fourth buyer called, he could be honestly informed about the other three possible buyers who had scheduled themselves to see the car. Now, if I were that fourth buyer, I'd want to know about the true amount of demand for that car at that price. And yes, I'd probably be favorably influenced toward the car after finding out that there were four of us who were interested in it.
but I would have been influenced by information that was honestly and accurately presented to me about the nature of the situation. That's valuable information, much too valuable to the seller and to the buyer to be bungled away. In general, not bungling away the power of the scarcity principle means emphasizing the unique features of our products and ideas. It's not enough to simply talk in terms of benefits. We also need to inform people accurately of what they will not be able to have if they fail to move in our suggested direction. The newest research suggests that this will be effective because people are much more motivated by the thought of losing something than by the thought of gaining that same thing. And if they genuinely stand to lose that thing because of the presence of competitors, we would be jerks not to make them aware of that possibility. So far, we've talked about scarcity only in terms of commodities, cookies, Coca-Cola, and cars. But the latest psychological research has uncovered another commodity that offers an advantage for those of us working in the business world. It turns out that the scarcity principle also applies to information. Information that is exclusive, that is not readily or widely available, is more persuasive than the same information that everyone has access to. If you think that you're the only one who's getting a particular communication, you listen more intently, you absorb it more fully, you value it more deeply, and it changes your mind to a greater extent. Let's take as an example a study that was done by a student of mine who was a successful businessman who had returned to school to get his degree in marketing. He wanted to do an experiment using his own sales staff and customers as the participants. So he came into my office and we talked about the principle of scarcity and how research now indicated that exclusive information and scarce commodities can cause people to want to say yes more quickly and more frequently. It happened that he was the owner of a business that imported beef from South America and Australia, which he then sold to large supermarket chains here in the United States by the train car load. After we talked for a while, we decided that he would do the following experiment. He went to his salespeople, who usually contacted their customers by phone, and he had them divide their list of customers randomly into three groups. They were to call the first set of customers and try to sell them on an allotment of beef by using their normal sales approach, which went something like, we have a certain allotment of beef available, it is of such and such a price, it is of such and such quality, and we can deliver by such and such a date. We think this is a good time to buy. How many carloads would you be interested in? That was the standard condition, the way the request was usually made. For a second set of buyers, however, the salespeople were told to add the information that, because of certain unexpected weather conditions in Australia, there would be a shortage of Australian beef in the near future. Then these individuals were asked to buy the product. The impact difference between these two forms of requests was pretty dramatic. Using just the standard request, the number of carloads purchased was 10. But in the second condition, when the request included scarcity of the product, the number of carloads bought more than doubled to 24. But there was one more condition in this experiment. In this one, the salespeople were told to say not only that there was an impending shortage of Australian beef, but that this information came from the company's exclusive sources in the Australian National Weather Service. 
No one else had this information. This was the scarcity double whammy. Not only was the beef scarce, but the information that the beef was scarce was scarce. What happened to buying patterns under those conditions? Six times as much beef as normal was purchased. 61 carloads compared to only 10 when using the standard approach. Now the beauty of this procedure was that it was performed in a completely ethical way. There really was an impending shortage of beef from Australia, and that information really did come from the company's exclusive contacts down there. So everyone, company and customer alike, benefited from the use of the technique. Afterwards, my student remarked to me that these circumstances, exclusive information about product scarcity, had existed several times before in the history of his company. But because he hadn't known at the time what the research on the scarcity principle said, he hadn't used those circumstances to his advantage. In fact, he hadn't used them at all. Here were a couple of things that were already right there in the situation, waiting for him to use, and he had been just bungling them away. But not anymore. Now, whenever he has a hot piece of news about upcoming scarcity, he takes the detective's route to influence by quickly making that information prominent and available to customers. And you can bet that he doesn't divide his customers into three groups anymore, he gives them all the most effective type of request. And by doing that, he generates a win-win arrangement each time. Because not only does he sell a lot of beef, but his customers get an advantage over their competitors by buying it before the price goes up. Let's make sure, then, that we use exclusivity of information only like a sleuth would. When there's new information in a system to support our ideas or products, let's uncover it and use it immediately before it gets widely known. We'll be much more persuasive with it that way. And when you've got some exclusive knowledge to share with a person you hope to influence with it, don't boot away the chance by failing to mention its exclusive nature. There's a definite tendency in our culture toward something I call expert worship. People are very willing to follow the suggestions of someone they see as a legitimate authority. And that makes a lot of sense because legitimate authorities have usually achieved their positions through superior experience or skill or wisdom or power. So most of the time, we do well to listen to and follow what an expert advises. That's true not just because we'll usually make right choices, it's also true because we get to take a shortcut to those choices. After finding out what the experts think, we don't have to think through the issues ourselves, at least not very deeply. We can save all that time and mental energy for the other decisions in our life. Look, if I want to know what kind of toothpaste to buy, I don't want to have to think all that hard about it. I don't want to have to go to the library and research the chemical components of good toothpaste. I just want to be able to flip the box over and see that the American Dental Council has certified that this brand is an effective agent against tooth decay. And that's it. Fine, the experts say this is a good toothpaste. Boom, I'll take it. In the shopping cart it goes, and I can be on my way. And this doesn't just apply to small toothpaste tube-sized decisions. It applies to important choices among complex options, 
like which kind of car to buy, what sort of home mortgage to get, which type of financial investments to purchase, even which doctors and hospitals to use for medical care. Very often, I find that certain decision areas are so complicated that the best and most efficient strategy is not to try to think it all out myself, but simply to follow the direction of a legitimate authority. In fact, taking an authority's suggestions can be such an automatic, mindless response that I frequently find myself deferring not to a genuine authority, but to someone who carries just the aura of authority. The trappings of authority, the titles, the cars, the clothes, are simple enough to fake that professional con artists employ them all the time. They love nothing better than to emerge elegantly dressed from a fine automobile and to introduce themselves to their prospective mark as doctor or professor or judge or commissioner someone. It's because of the smugglers of our society that we have to be on guard against the trap that authority influence can sometimes produce. Now, besides the authority influence traps that smugglers set for us, there's another authority trap to avoid that is just as damaging but more insidious because we set it for ourselves. When we find ourselves in positions of authority, in positions of leadership, we can make the mistake of thinking that we always want the people working under our direction to comply with our wishes. However, once we recognize that we're human after all, and prone to the occasional wrong decisions, misperceptions, and poor choices that anyone could make, we can see that we actually don't want our subordinates to go along with whatever we say. If they fell into the trap of reacting rather than thinking in response to our directives, the trap would surely snap shut on us too, because our errors would get put into effect without anyone being there to notice and catch them first. Even inadvertent or silly errors on our part could slip through the system, ultimately leading to our great embarrassment or worse. As an illustration of how easy it is for this sort of thing to happen to anyone, let's take an example from one aspect of our lives where authority pressures are visible and strong. Medicine. Health is an enormously important thing to us. So physicians who possess knowledge and influence in this vital area hold the position of respected authorities. In addition, the medical establishment has a clear power and prestige structure. The various kinds of healthcare workers understand where their jobs rate in this structure, and they understand, too, that the MDs rate at the top. No one may overrule a doctor's judgment in a case, except perhaps another doctor of higher rank. As a result, a long-established tradition of automatic obedience to doctor's orders has developed among healthcare staffs. The worrisome possibility arises then that when a physician makes a clear error, no one lower in the hierarchy will think to question it, precisely because once a legitimate authority has given an order, subordinates stop thinking in the situation and start reacting. Mix this kind of mechanical response into a complex hospital environment and mistakes are inevitable. In fact, a study done by the U.S. Healthcare Financing Administration shows that for patient medication alone, the average hospital in this country has a 12% daily error rate. 
Think of the implications. You can do the math and see that if you are a hospital patient for more than a week, you stand a very good chance that sometime during your stay, there will be an error in the medication you are given. For a manager or a group leader in any type of organization, this kind of mindless deference is a real danger. Perhaps nowhere is this point driven home more dramatically than in the life and death consequences of something that the airline industry has labeled captainitis. It seems that accident investigators from the Federal Aviation Administration have noted that with disturbing frequency, an obvious error made by the flight captain was not corrected by the other crew members and a deadly crash was the result. Apparently, the crew members were using the shortcut, if an authority says so, it must be true, rule, in failing to attend or respond to the captain's disastrous mistake. In fact, several years ago, one major airline company became so worried about this tendency among its crews that it conducted an experiment to examine just how widespread the problem actually was. Flight crews were called in to undergo tests of their ability to handle simulated landings and takeoffs under conditions of harsh weather and poor visibility. Now, at some point during the simulations, company officials would take the captain aside and say, during this exercise, we want you to make an obvious, visible error that, unless corrected in a minute or so, will crash the plane. And we want to see how your crew reacts. To the great dismay of the airline company officials, after the captains made those deliberate, potentially catastrophic mistakes, fully 25% of the flights would have crashed because no one in those crews took corrective steps in the face of the authority figure's action. These results are scary for those of us who travel on commercial airlines frequently, but they are also instructive about the power of authority pressures in groups of all sorts. After all, the mistakes the captain made were specifically designed to be severe and conspicuous enough that anyone in the crew would know that they would soon lead to disaster. And yet in 25% of those crews, no one said a word or lifted a finger to correct that error. Well, here's our puzzle of the moment then. Why didn't anybody speak up or step in to save the day? To solve the puzzle, we need only to look at the research done on group leadership styles and recognize that these were the crews dominated by an authoritarian leadership structure. In that kind of structure, the leader communicates to subordinates, either directly or indirectly, that their input is not required or desired that their constructive criticism will be viewed as impertinence, and that any questions about the leader's directives will be seen as challenges to his or her authority. Aside from the poor morale that develops, what happens very quickly in these groups is first, subordinates stop thinking very much about whether what the boss wants is smart or dumb, because they've been told essentially that it's not their place that they're being paid to do what the boss says, not to think about why they're doing it. The second thing that happens is that if subordinates do notice something that seems to be wrong with the boss's decision on a given matter, they're reluctant to mention it for fear that they'll be brushed off, ridiculed, or even penalized as a result. And third, 
there is one all too human reason why a leader's mistakes often go uncorrected. None of us is going to want to save the skin of a boss who has communicated a lack of respect for our professional intelligence. What can you do to avoid the kind of trap that characterizes the authoritarian style? First, I'd recommend against thinking that you can solve the problem by going too far in the other direction and taking a vote among the people who work under you every time there's an important decision to be made and then simply abiding by what the majority prefers. You have been charged with the responsibility of making those decisions. That's what you're getting paid for, presumably because you've given evidence of being able to make those decisions better than the people working under you. This most certainly does not mean, however, that those people should be shut out of the process. You should establish right from the start that you welcome and value their input on all matters where they may have knowledge. That, in fact, you need their knowledge in order to make the best possible decisions. And that you are human, like anyone else, and likely to make some honest mistakes that you need all the help you can get to minimize. At the same time, you have to communicate the message that, although you feel compelled to always welcome their advice, you won't feel compelled to always follow it. Now there's the delicate part. How do you make that last statement to a group of people without making it sound like you plan to disregard what they say? For me, the answer is to stress that in any decision, a number of considerations have to be taken into account. But that one thing you can promise with complete certainty is that the opinion of any person working with you will be one factor that you will put into the equation. It may not be the deciding factor, but it will be a factor. It will be given weight in your decision. I don't see how, as a good leader, you can do more than that. To simply take a poll is to abdicate your responsibilities as a leader and to bungle away the opportunity to use the insights and abilities that put you into the leadership position. But to try to do it yourself is to put yourself way up on a tightrope with no one underneath to hold the net in case you slip. So you need to encourage everyone with a stake in the decision process to make a contribution to it and to assure that anyone who offers a contribution will be respected in that process. That doesn't sound like much, but when it's properly accomplished, it's more than enough. In our discussion of the authority principle so far, I've tried to stress how powerful a source of influence it can be. What I haven't said yet, though, is that there is one particular type of authority who is the most powerful of all, a kind of authority who constitutes the most persuasive communicator that has ever been registered in the research of social science. Well, it's the credible authority who possesses that power. But simply understanding that fact isn't enough. To be able to use that piece of knowledge for instant influence, we have to know what it takes to be credible in the eyes of others. If we turn once again to the research findings for the answer, we can see two features, the same two features, always coming to the surface in studies done around the world. A credible authority has first, expertise, and second, 
trustworthiness. If either is missing, persuasiveness will drop dramatically. But if both are in place, influence will be maximal. Because both are important, let's take them one at a time. By now, it should come as no surprise that a legitimate expert, a person with relevant knowledge, can lead others towards saying yes. It has been a surprise to me, however, to see how often someone with genuine expertise in an area bungles away the chance to make an impact with it. Not long ago, I was asked by a local hospital to consult with them about a problem they were having. It seemed that many of the physical therapy patients who were recovering from accidents or strokes were not following through on the exercise programs that had been prescribed for them. When they were released from the hospital, the therapist or assistant they were working with would give them a recommended set of exercises to do at home. But when they returned to the hospital therapy lab from time to time so that their progress could be checked, it was clear that many of them had not been doing the exercises. After interviewing several of them, I thought I saw something that could be done easily to help relieve the problem. Although most people know what kind of education and training a doctor must go through, medical school, internships, residency requirements, few people know anything about the expertise that a physical therapist must have to be certified in that field. And it wasn't a doctor whose medical background was known and respected who was giving patients the instructions to do their exercises. It was a group of people whose medical credentials were unclear to the patients who were making the recommendations. Even though the therapy staff had the necessary expertise, it was being fumbled away because they hadn't been informing the patients about it properly. My suggestion was to take a hint from the doctors themselves, who consistently assure us of their qualifications by displaying on their office walls all of the diplomas and certifications that they have earned. When the therapy staff at my local hospital did the same thing, the service of one entire wall in the therapy lab where all the patients get their treatment was covered with an impressive array of awards, certifications, diplomas, and credentials. By the following week, exercise compliance had gone up 30%. We didn't fool any of the patients into complying, quite the reverse. We informed them into compliance. The staff's expertise was real, real and waiting, waiting for us to uncover it, to make it more visible to everyone so that it could be used to everyone's benefit. There's a lesson here for all of us. A lot of times we'll be dealing with another individual under the impression that the individual has an accurate picture of the depth of knowledge and experience that we can bring to bear on the relevant issues. But in fact, our impression may be mistaken. First of all, people can't look into a crystal ball to find out that sort of information about us. At the same time, we can't just march right in and start boasting about our knowledge and experience either. So, my advice is to always try and spend some time at the beginning of a business meeting, especially with someone you don't know well, by providing your credentials in a more indirect fashion. We can take a hint from the way that business is done outside of the U.S., in Japan, in Europe, in South America. It's customary to spend some time chatting socially before getting down to business. This provides a way for individuals to get to know one another personally. But more than that, 
It offers an informal opportunity to share background information that can be highly relevant to the business discussions that will follow. In the course of talking about where you grew up, went to school, where you've lived in the past, and so on, you get to describe educational experiences, prior positions, and professional connections that can reflect directly on the knowledge and savvy you bring to the business matters at hand. One nice thing about this approach is that even though the information that's passed along reflects directly on your expertise, it comes to the surface indirectly as a natural part of a sociable exchange. As a result, in getting across valuable information about your true credentials, you don't risk coming on too strong and being seen as a bald-faced self-promoter. But there's a second advantage as well. By cultivating this initial exchange of personal information, you create the means to establish your expertise very early in the game, so that when attention is turned to formal business matters, what you have to say will be listened to with more respect right from the beginning. Okay, we've covered one half of the credibility equation, expertise. Now let's consider the other half, trustworthiness. Suppose you're an expert on some topic and you're trying to influence an audience to follow your suggestions on that topic. It could be an audience of customers, coworkers, even your boss. The research evidence is clear that even if the audience recognizes you as an authority, you will not be especially successful unless the audience also sees you as trustworthy. What do I mean by trustworthy? I mean that the audience has to believe that the information you are providing is unbiased, that you're not trying to serve your own interests or to line your own pockets by presenting this information, but instead that you're honestly trying to depict reality. All right, fine. Suppose that's precisely what you're trying to do, to accurately depict reality. How do you get that across to the person you're trying to convince? How do you generate this extremely valuable perception of trustworthiness? The standard answer is that you interact with the person in an honest, straightforward fashion, and over a period of time, maybe months, maybe more, the realization that you are a trustworthy individual simply develops. It grows slowly but surely. But what happens if you don't have that much time to make an impression of credibility? Let's say you're dealing with someone for the first time. You really know what you're talking about, and you're providing this person with the facts exactly as you see them. What can you do so that this individual sees you immediately as the credible expert you genuinely are? It turns out that there's a simple procedure for doing so that works astonishingly well when it's properly executed. Advertisers have used it for years with great success. Here's what it involves. Before you mention any of the strengths of your case, before you ever mention a reason for the audience to adopt the stance you are supporting, you mention a drawback first. You describe a weakness in your product or service or idea. Maybe you allow as how the competition has a good product too or that the service you provide usually takes a little time before showing results, or that there are also some good arguments against the management project that you are advocating. In other words, you say something initially that seems to be contrary to your own interests. 
This establishes your basic credibility. Not only are you shown to be knowledgeable because you are aware of both sides of the issue, but you are also shown to be trustworthy because you will bring up the negatives of your position. But now, when you launch into the positives, the superior features of your product, the excellent track record of your service, the advantages of your project, people are going to listen to you differently. They're going to believe those positives to a greater extent because they come from the lips of a credible communicator, the most persuasive source of information there is. Let's take a look at some examples from the advertising world to see how this strategy has been used in some campaigns that you probably remember because they were so effective. How about this one? Avis, we're number two, but we try harder. Or this one, L'Oreal, expensive, but worth it. Or this one, the Peace Corps, the toughest job you'll ever love. In each of these appeals, a real flaw or drawback was mentioned first to establish honesty, and then was followed by product strengths. And in each of the cases, the campaign proved highly successful. Let's take one more example of how this approach works in a setting most people don't even realize is an influence setting, the restaurant. There's a person there, the waiter or waitress, who has an agenda for you, actually two agendas. One is to get you to leave a large tip at the end of the meal. The other is to get you to spend a lot on the food so that the base on which that large tip is figured is also large. And there's a very effective strategy that the most effective servers will use to achieve both of those goals. Here's what they do. Let's say that you decide to go out to a fine French restaurant for dinner with some friends, and I'll be your waiter. I approach the first person at the table, usually a lady, let's say Michelle here, and I'll ask for her order. It doesn't matter what she orders. I go into the following routine. Let's say she orders the salmon in ginger sauce. Hmm? Doesn't matter. My pen freezes above my pad. I look over my shoulder conspiratorially for the manager. And then I lean down so everyone at the table can hear. And I say, don't get the salmon tonight. It's not as fresh as it usually is. Hmm? Oh, we seem to have a few people who've had this happen to them. Hmm? And now I say, don't get that. And I recommend something a dollar or so less expensive from the menu. Wait a minute, less expensive? I've got you in the palm of my hand? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna move you to something less expensive? Yes, because I don't want you to see me as having told you about whatever else I recommended in order to enhance my interests. I want you to see me as working on your side, acting against my own interests. I'm taking money out of my own pocket to give you the straight scoop about this restaurant this evening. 
Well, you know what 20% of a dollar is? It's trivial. But what I've generated by giving away that 20 cents is the perception of trustworthiness in your eyes. And when I return to the table and say, and would you like me to recommend a vintage for the table or perhaps select a, a vintage for the group? You look at me, you nod and you smile and you say, well, yes, Robert. <laughs> you know what's good here and you have our interests at heart and I smack you with an expensive bottle of wine. And the same thing happens when I return with the dreaded dessert cart and I wax rhapsodic about the glories of the chocolate mousse and the baked Alaska. It's magnificent. The baked Alaska is magnificent. The chocolate mousse, you must not leave without trying our desserts. You believe me now in a way that you wouldn't have believed me before. And I make out like a bandit. And bandit is the right word. Because how did I, as Robert the waiter, bring credibility to bear on that situation? I smuggled it in. I didn't employ any real credibility there. I just made up the story about the salmon that wasn't good that night. If the first person had ordered the veal piccata or the steak Diane or the stuffed sole, I would have said the same thing. But there's no reason for me to have been a credibility smuggler. I could have been a detective of influence and gotten the same benefits while giving benefits at the same time. If I had just come in to work 15 minutes early to check with the chef and the kitchen staff to see what really was good and what wasn't good that evening, I could have then brought that information to the top of my table presentation. By doing that, I would now stand to gain honestly from the reciprocity and credibility principles because I would have done everybody a genuine favor thereby earning my larger tip, and I would have been a proper communicator of information about the stores of the house that evening, thereby earning your trust. So, when I came back with the dessert cart, you'd be especially willing to take my recommendations. And, because I had done my homework in the kitchen earlier, I could tell you which of the desserts the chef was truly proudest of that night, and it would be win-win again. Not only would I have gained your confidence and your enhanced gratitude, along with your enhanced gratuities, you would have gotten the best meal available at my restaurant that evening. And that's the sort of thing that would make you want to come back again and maybe even ask specifically for me to be your waiter when you do. And so, as with all detectives of influence, my long-term prospects with you will be bright. Now, you might be saying, well, all that is fine and good, but I don't work in a restaurant. How does this apply to what I do? It applies because any time you have a case to make in constructing a sales presentation, in motivating a co-worker to move in a desired direction, in negotiating a contract, in getting a budget approved, whatever, there are going to be pros and cons to your case. Now, I'm going to assume two things. First, that you are ethical enough and wise enough to present the cons along with the pros. And second, 
that aside from wanting to be ethical, you're going to want to be effective. But there's a common mistake people make in trying to be effective. They start out with the pros, figuring that they'll get their influence target leaning in their direction by hitting them first with their strongest arguments, their biggest guns. Then they'll slip in the weaknesses of their position toward the end. What's easy to forget, though, is that your big guns and strong arguments don't seem so big and strong to a target who hasn't decided whether you can be trusted yet. I'm sure you can recall when it's happened to you. You've launched into an inspired presentation of your case, raising your very best points, and these points, your best shots, are bouncing off that person you're trying to convince like there's a deflector shield between you, like there's some kind of wall between you. Well, there is. It's a wall of uncertainty. How is this person supposed to know that you are knowledgeable enough to recognize the weaknesses as well as the strengths of your case? And how is this person supposed to know that you are ethical enough to describe those weaknesses until you mention them? He can't, not without a crystal ball. So the secret to being ethical and effective is not just what you say, it's also when you say it. The key is how you sequence the information. Once again, we can see that what you do first changes the way people experience what you do later. So never bungle away the credibility you have by waiting to display it until the strongest parts of your message are passed. Our next principle of instant influence is the principle of consensus. To help you understand how this principle works, let's listen to the following conversation. Uh, what time is it, hon? Uh, let's see. Uh, just past noon. Hey, we're making great time. Good. Uh, what do you say we stop for lunch? Ooh, sounds good to me. Let's see. According to my map, there's an exit coming up that'll take us right into a town called Elmwood. Okay, Elmwood it is. Uh, here's the turnoff now. But how do we know which restaurant to eat at? Looks like mm, there are three or four of them up ahead. Oh, simple. We'll use the old people-proof system I always use whenever I'm in a strange town. What? The people-proof system. Says uh, not to eat at this uh, first place on the left, uh, or the place across the street there, but here at this cafe on the right. Well, this does look like a nice little place, but what is this little secret system of yours? Oh, no secret. I just go to the place with the most cars in the parking lot. I figure if a lot of people eat in a place, that's all the proof I need. I use the same system to decide what to get from the menu. <laughs> what do you mean? You look at the parking lot to decide what to order? No, I, I go inside and ask which things the restaurant serves the most of for whatever meal I'm having there. Oh. I don't pay any attention at all to what the manager is trying to push that day or, or to what the menu says are the specialties of the house. I just find out from the waitress what's most popular, you know, day in and day out. And I usually wind up with a very good meal. Mm. It's like I said, the people are the proof. Smart. Uh -huh. Real smart. Yep. I gotta admit it, you're a pretty intelligent guy. <sighs> After all, you married me. Let's go eat. It's pretty obvious that the man in that little scene was conforming to another kind of shortcut rule to guide his behavior. He called it the people-proof rule, which is actually a good name for it, although social scientists would call it the rule of consensus. It states that, very frequently, people can accurately decide what is appropriate for them to think, feel, and do in a situation 
by examining what others like them are thinking, feeling, and doing there. By following the consensus, people can be quickly and efficiently right much of the time. This simple principle of behavior accounts for an amazing array of human responses. It explains why people follow the crowd, conform to the majority, and get on the bandwagon in virtually every area of their lives. It also explains a number of other mysteries of human behavior. For instance, there's the mystery of the Singapore bank panic. One morning a few years ago, for no apparent reason, customers of a certain bank in Singapore gathered in a crowd outside of its doors, and as soon as the bank opened, they started drawing out all of their money in a mad frenzy. After just a few hours, the bank was forced to shut its doors early in order to avoid being financially ruined. Afterward, no one could figure out why this run on the bank occurred. The bank was completely solvent. There were no newspaper stories the day before that even hinted that the bank was in trouble, and no false rumors were being spread by rival institutions or disgruntled investors. Nobody could understand it until one researcher started interviewing the customers who had withdrawn their funds. He found that the cause was, of all things, a wildcat bus strike. It turned out that there was a bus stop directly in front of the bank's doors where people waited every morning. Well, on this particular morning, unknown to everyone, the bus drivers decided to go on strike. So, the crowd in front of the bank grew and grew until passers-by thought that there was some kind of trouble brewing at the bank and that all these people were waiting to withdraw their money. So the passers-by joined the crowd, which caused more passers-by to notice and join the crowd, which by now was buzzing with rumors about the bank's collapse. When the astonished bank officials did open the doors, it was all they could do to get out of the way to avoid being trampled by a mob of customers, some of whom were the original bus passengers, all demanding their money. Obviously, these customers were more influenced by the people-proof of the situation than by the reality of the situation. Here's another mystery for us to solve, the mystery of television laugh tracks. I've never met anybody who likes the canned laughter that accompanies all the situation comedy shows we see on TV. Even the actors, directors, and writers who are associated with these shows hate them. Why, then, is canned laughter so popular with television executives? The answer turns out to be simple. They know what the research says. Experiments have found that the use of canned merriment causes an audience to laugh longer and more often when humorous material is presented and to rate that material as funnier. In other words, people take their cue from the sound of others laughing when deciding how funny a joke is and whether they should laugh at it themselves. Please notice something about these last two examples. They each show us how following the evidence of the crowd can lead us into an influence trap. Taking into account the consensus of opinion on some issue normally makes a lot of sense. Research shows, for instance, that when faced with a problem, more heads are much better than one in coming up with the correct solution. The mistake comes not in making consensus information one factor in our decisions, it comes from making it the only factor. That can lead to trouble for two reasons. First, as we saw in the bank panic example, the consensus can sometimes be wrong. Second, as we saw in the laugh track example, the evidence of what the consensus is can sometimes be faked. 
And TV executives aren't the only ones who try to smuggle people-proof into situations where it doesn't naturally exist by counterfeiting the evidence. Advertisers construct phony average man-on-the-street testimonial commercials in which a bunch of actors are hired to look and sound like people being recorded by a hidden camera while singing the product's praises. Nightclub owners create long waiting lines outside their establishments to create the impression of its popularity, even though there's plenty of room inside. Bartenders salt their tip jars with large bills at the beginning of their shift. And church officials have been known to do the same thing before the collection plate is passed at services. Well, if you find individuals in church smuggling information about what others have done, you can be sure you're going to find people smuggling that information in business, too. That's why it's so important not to accept consensus uncritically. Instead, you need to evaluate it along with the other sources of information you would normally use to make a decision. The objective facts, your prior experiences, your own judgments, and so on. If the evidence you get about what everybody else is doing fits with your check of these other sources of information, then fine. Use it to help you make your choice. But if it doesn't fit, watch out. I think we've covered the influence trap aspect of people proof. Now let's talk about how this very powerful principle of behavior can be used for positive influence. The best way to do that is to describe the three conditions that increase the chance that an observer will do what others in the situation are doing. Those conditions are, first, when a lot of others are doing it, second, when the others are similar to the observer, and third, when the observer is unfamiliar with the situation. Let's take them one at a time. The more people who are performing a given activity, the more likely it is that others will join in. It's simply human nature to believe that there must be value in an activity if a lot of people are doing it. So. When we do have the people proof on our side, it would be a shame to fumble it away. As an agent of influence trying to get someone to move in your direction, don't rely solely on your own powers of persuasion. Use the persuasive power that lies in the actions of others, too. If you've got the consensus of opinion on your side, make sure that you're ready and able to chart numbers, to cite statistics, and to present lists. This last practice of presenting lists of names can be especially effective because it offers your influence target personalized people proof of the wisdom of your suggestion. And it works. For example, in one study, a researcher went door to door asking for charity donations and showing homeowners a list containing the names of others in the neighborhood who had already given. When he analyzed the results, the researcher found an interesting thing. The longer the list of contributors he showed anyone, the greater was his chance of getting another contribution. What's more, the greater the average donation on the list, the larger was the average donation given by anyone who saw the list. Now, there was something else about this list study that you should take note of. The names the homeowners were influenced by weren't the names of just anybody. They were other people in the neighborhood. In other words, people just like them. This leads us to the second condition that maximizes the impact of the consensus principle. 
we are most influenced by the actions of people who are similar to ourselves. It makes sense, doesn't it? If we're trying to decide what is appropriate behavior for ourselves in a situation, we should pay attention to the actions of individuals there who are most like us. If you don't believe that this is the case, then try to convince someone to do what you're suggesting by providing evidence that some very different people have done so. You'll be wasting your time. We're all more affected by the actions of people who are similar to us than we are by those who are different. Suppose for a moment that your job is to sell business insurance for a company that has had good success in the field and that you're trying to convince the owners of a small video rental store, just a mom and pop operation, to consider taking out a policy. Telling them that your company insures Bloomingdale's department store in New York and the Superdome in New Orleans and the Grand Old Opry in Nashville might get them to say to themselves, wow, that's a big company. But it's not going to get them to say, hey, that must be the company for me. In trying to make an impression in describing all your company's big clients, you might be missing the crucial opportunity to tell your prospects about your company's strengths with small, similar-sized customers. It would be much better to tell them about the video store owner a few miles away who decided to buy a policy from you and your company last month. Or the guy who expanded to two video stores last year and who's insuring both with you. Better still, would be if you could show them a testimonial letter from that guy expressing his satisfaction with the policy and the service you've been giving him. I'm a great believer in using testimonial letters in sales. I mean, if you've got a lot of satisfied customers, why bungle away the instant and ethical influence that reality can produce in a new prospect? With a variety of those letters in hand, different letters that fit the circumstances of almost any new prospect, your effectiveness should jump. It's when people feel unfamiliar with a particular situation that they are in that they are most likely to want to look outside of themselves to people just like them for the evidence of what to do. It stands to reason. All they can see inside themselves is that uncertainty. That makes them very ready to take their lead from someone else. But not just from anyone else, because they still want to know what is appropriate for them to do. So they'll look to the closest thing, people just like them. We can apply this insight in many other areas of business. For instance, in the workplace, new employees are frequently very unsure of themselves. The anxiety they feel as a result of this uncertainty can lead to various kinds of errors and mistakes, which can lead to even more anxiety and even more mistakes. Unless a manager knows how to interrupt this negative progression, Employees can lose self-confidence and can get a view of themselves as people who do just ordinary quality work, at best, rather than excellent work on the job. One thing a manager can do to counteract this sort of thing is to provide the honest information that many new employees experience anxieties and self-doubts about their abilities, but that once they relax and feel comfortable with their job, they often become excellent performers. To show how this can work, 
Researchers at the University of Virginia tried an experiment with freshman students who were scoring below average in their classes and who said they were extremely worried about their academic abilities. One group of these freshmen were shown statistics indicating that a lot of freshmen at the University of Virginia do poorly in their first semesters there, but they typically do much better in later semesters. The other group of freshmen were not given those statistics. The results were immediate. On the next examination the students took, those who had gotten the comforting statistics scored significantly better than those who had not. Furthermore, when the researchers tracked the progress of these two groups in later semesters, those who had gotten the statistics had significantly higher grade point averages than those whose anxieties had not been removed in this way. The same lesson can be applied to new co-workers who are uncertain and anxious about their abilities on the job. Simply giving them evidence of highly successful employees who at one time made the same mistakes and harbored the same self-doubts can be a very effective way of creating a more optimistic outlook and immediately improve performance. And that's the third condition that maximizes the power of consensus, when people are unfamiliar with the situation. On the next side of this cassette, Dr. Cialdini will explain the powerful principle of commitment and consistency, and how the drive to be and look consistent is strong enough to get us to do what we ordinarily wouldn't do. He'll also discuss the friendship and liking principle, which explains how we're much more likely to say yes to people we know and like. A study done by a pair of Canadian psychologists reveals something fascinating about people at the racetrack. Just after placing their bets, they are much more confident of their horse's chances of winning than they are immediately before laying down those bets. Of course, Nothing about the horse's chances actually shifts. It's the same horse, on the same track, in the same field. But in the minds of those bettors, its possibilities improve tremendously once that ticket is purchased. Although it seems a bit puzzling at first glance, the reason for the dramatic change has to do with the next principle of instant influence I want to talk about. Like the other principles, this one lies deep within us directing our actions with quiet power. It is, quite simply, our relentless desire to be and to appear to be consistent with what we have already done. And there's good reason for it. In most circumstances, consistency is admirable. Inconsistency is commonly thought to be an undesirable personality trait in our society. The woman who changes her mind again and again is considered flighty or scatterbrained. The man whose opinions can be easily influenced is viewed as indecisive and weak-willed, a waffler or a wimp. The person whose beliefs, words, and deeds don't match is seen as confused, two-faced, or even mentally ill. On the other side, a high degree of consistency is normally associated with personal and intellectual strength. It's at the heart of logic, rationality, stability, and honesty. Certainly, then, good personal consistency is highly valued in our culture, and well it should be. 
It provides us with a reasonable and effective orientation to the world. Most of the time, we'll be better off if our approach to things is well-laced with consistency. Without it, our lives would be difficult, erratic, and disjointed. But because it is typically in our best interest to be consistent, we can fall into the habit of being automatically consistent, even in situations where it's not the sensible way to be. When it occurs unthinkingly, consistency can be a trap, causing us to persist in behavior patterns that no longer fit the situation. It can prevent us from recognizing that conditions have changed, conditions that require new choices and new approaches. Here's what I'd suggest to make sure that you avoid the pitfalls of mindless consistency. Go to your desk calendar and block out one hour in every month of the year. Then, when that day and hour occur, use it for nothing but a review of the wisdom of staying true to the important choices you've made on the job in the past. Consider your current direction, consider who you rely on for vital information, consider who you choose to delegate responsibilities to, and ask yourself whether those prior decisions are still the same ones you would make given the conditions that apply right now. You'd be surprised how often you might find yourself making necessary changes or adjustments that you hadn't realized were necessary until you took the time to challenge the appeal of flying on automatic pilot. Of course, besides knowing how to avoid the trap of consistency, we also want to know how to harness the force of the principle for positive influence. Once we realize the power of consistency in directing our actions, an important practical question immediately comes up. How is that power engaged? What is it that triggers the drive for consistency in people? Social psychologists think they know the answer. Commitment. If I can get you to make a commitment, that is, to take a stand and go on record, you will experience a pressure to think, speak, and act consistently with that commitment in the future. The interesting thing is how small these initial commitments can be and yet still change the course of later behavior. For instance, one set of researchers in the city of Toronto went to certain neighborhoods, randomly selected certain houses, and asked the homeowners to accept and wear a small lapel pin supporting the local cancer society. The requested behavior was so trivial that virtually everyone who was asked agreed and put on the pin. But the impact of that little commitment was not trivial at all. Later on, when the Cancer Society actually began its annual charity drive by going door-to-door -door seeking donations, the researchers examined the records to see which households gave a contribution. What they found was pretty remarkable. While less than half of the homeowners who did not receive a pin gave something, three-quarters of all those who did take and wear a pin made a donation. Now, almost everyone was favorable toward the Cancer Society. You can tell that from the fact that virtually everybody who was asked to wear a pin agreed to wear it. But it was only these people who wound up actively committing themselves in this small way who were then likely to follow through with a contribution. 
the people who were not asked to make a small commitment to their favorable attitude to the cancer society, who were not asked to wear a pin, were far less likely to contribute. For me, this represents an absolutely invaluable lesson about the psychology of influence. Just having or getting others feeling positive toward your idea or product or service is not enough. To get favorable action, you have to commit them to that favorable attitude. Before I learned that simple but crucial lesson, I used to make a common and classic mistake of influence agents. I remember one time in particular when I was trying to convince a colleague of mine at the university to teach his classes in a new way that would benefit the students more. After spending some time with him on the topic, I was sure I had been successful. All the signs told me so. And he really sat up and took notice when I showed him how much higher my students had evaluated my classes after I switched to the new approach. Through it all, he had been nodding his head as I set forth my case, and by the end of things, I was certain that I had won him over and that he would change his teaching methods. But I was wrong. He never changed his behavior. I recall being quite puzzled at the time, wondering how I could have misread the evidence of change so totally. But now, I think that I didn't misread the evidence after all. What I did misread, though, was the nature of the change I had produced. I assumed that it was lasting rather than temporary. It's easy to forget that when left to its own devices, change is rarely a permanent thing. And because I had done nothing to solidify the shift my colleague had made to root it firmly in his view of things, the change simply evaporated with the passage of time. And with it, went any chance that my persuasive efforts would affect his future actions. How about you? Ever been confident that you have persuaded a co-worker or a subordinate that a change of ways was necessary, only to find a short time later that after an initial period of improvement, the person had reverted back to the old habits and seemed no different than before? Or have you ever had the experience of being willing to bet that you had made a sale, only to call back at an appointed time for the order to find that, in the meantime, the progress you had made had dissipated and the customer was no longer in a buying mood? These are precisely the kinds of things that will happen when we fail to use the process of psychological commitment to cement the change we have created. It's only when people feel psychologically committed to a change that the change is likely to influence their future actions in a continuing and persistent way. So, the practical question that we must face then becomes this. Working as a sleuth of influence would, what can we do to win the kinds of commitments that lead to lasting change? For the answer, we can once again look to the research evidence where the latest findings tell us that commitments will be most effective in producing consistent future responses when they possess three major features. When they are active, when they are public, and when they are voluntary. Let's look at those features one by one. Individuals are much more likely to behave in accord with an initial commitment when, in the process of making that commitment, they have been active. 
That is, they have spoken or written or acted. This is the reason why, when we think we have successfully changed somebody's mind, we should not be content to let that change reside only in the other person's mind. Instead, we should arrange for that person to take concrete steps to solidify the commitment. That can be done in a variety of ways. We could ask the individual to describe the change and its implications in a memo to us, or we could ask the individual to write down a set of goals based on the change. As a commitment strengthening device, having people make written statements has some great advantages. For one, written declarations provide undeniable physical evidence that the act occurred. Once people have set down a commitment on paper, it becomes very difficult for them to believe that they haven't made the commitment after all. The opportunities to forget or deny that a stand was truly taken are no longer available. There it is, in their own handwriting, a written document pressing them to be consistent with what they obviously committed themselves to do. As a rule, then, people live up to what they have written down. This rule applies across the board. If you have customers who say they love something about your product, don't bungle away the opportunity to ask them to write a little testimonial letter to that effect. They'll come to love your product even more as a result. And if you want to motivate yourself by setting performance goals, don't forget to use the leverage that writing down those goals can provide. Written statements can be made public. Because of a desire to appear consistent, a person is more likely to stay loyal to a commitment the more people are aware of it. So make sure that when you set goals for yourself, or when you ask others to set goals for themselves, that you don't bungle away the effect that making the commitment public can have. Okay, we've seen the kind of power that's available to us in the use of active public commitments. Now, let's talk about the final feature of a commitment that gives it the ability to direct further behavior. The commitment must be voluntary. If it's forced, if it's coerced, if it's pressured from the outside, it's not going to be effective. As Samuel Butler wrote more than 300 years ago, he who complies against his will is of the same opinion still. As far as I'm concerned, that sentiment is as true today as it was on the day it was written. More than any other factor, the thing that determines whether a person's decision at time one will produce consistent responses at time two is the extent to which the person takes personal possession of the earlier decision, takes inner responsibility for it. Think about your own behavior in a situation such as this. Let's say the company you work for sends out a memo to all the employees asking for 100% participation in a fund drive for some particular charity the firm is associated with. You see this kind of thing all the time, especially in larger companies. Now let's also assume that your boss is on the company committee that's spearheading the drive. He comes to you and pressures you into signing a pledge card which says that you will make a donation. Now, you're not interested in contributing to this particular charity. Maybe you've got your own charity to give to. Maybe you don't find your boss's charity especially worthwhile. Whatever the reason, you don't want to be part of this particular fund drive. But your boss pressures you into signing the pledge. You know, however, 
that your boss will never find out if you follow through on the pledge by actually making the donation. He might eventually learn that only 85% or so of the pledges resulted in donations, but he won't find out specifically who followed through and who didn't. So what do you eventually do? If you're like me, the fact that you took an active public stand by signing the pledge card wouldn't mean a thing. If I felt that my decision to make the pledge wasn't truly my own, but had been pushed on me from the outside, I wouldn't experience any pressure to live up to it later. In fact, I'd probably resent the whole process so much that I'd never contribute to that charity in the future either. That's why it's so important when we're trying to get somebody to take a first step in our direction to make sure that the step is a voluntary one. If it's not, there will be no momentum to that step to make continued movement in our direction likely. As I see it, that's pretty much the legacy of commitments that are smuggled in from the outside. Although they may work for a short time, people who feel pressured or tricked or trapped into taking a position simply don't feel personally bound to the position and consequently are likely to abandon it at first chance. What's more, they can easily come to feel a bitterness toward the position and toward the person who pushed them into it. So, if as usual, the smuggler's route isn't the way to go, what can we do? I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear me say that we should take the sleuth's approach of looking within our influence targets for those existing commitments, the beliefs, the attitudes, the values, the behavior patterns that are already consistent with the direction we would like them to move. Once we've sought out and uncovered those existing commitments, we can raise them to the surface by arranging for individuals to take active public stands on what they truly value. Then, if we can honestly point out how our product, our service, or our idea is consistent with their personal and now clearly visible commitments, the consistency principle will take over and move them to us. And not only will we benefit, but so will they, because they will be moving in a direction that is in keeping with what they genuinely want and prefer. The best thing about taking the detective's approach is that we don't have to worry about the guy bailing out on the commitments. They're his. They come from the inside. He took personal possession of them a long time ago. That's why showing him how what we have to offer is congruent with his commitments can be such a powerful instrument for immediate and persisting change in our direction. By accident, I saw just how effectively existing commitments can be used to produce beneficial change. I had been asked by the administration of a local hospital to help motivate stroke patients to do their exercise program faithfully after they left the hospital. If you remember our earlier discussion, one of the things we did was to use the credibility principle by having the therapy staff put up all their diplomas, certificates, and awards. But another thing we tried to use was the consensus principle, the influence that comes from observing the actions of similar others. After talking to a number of the patients, we found that they all believed in the wisdom of doing their exercises. It was just that when they got home, it was difficult to motivate themselves to do them. So, we decided that 
we would ask some of these former patients to appear on videotape stating their true beliefs that regular home exercise was important and valuable for recovery. We also asked hospital staff members, nurses, therapists, and a couple of doctors to make a similar set of tapes. Then, when new stroke patients were about to leave the hospital to go home, we showed them either the staff tapes or the patient tapes, figuring that the most effective information for the new patients would be that which came from an array of similar others. And we were right. When we measured the improvements of the various patients, we found that those who saw the tapes made by former stroke patients were more likely to have stayed with their exercise program after they went home than were the patients who saw the tapes made by the staff members. But here's what surprised us. You know which patients showed the greatest improvements? Those who made the tapes for us. Why? Because by making a tape for us, they had also made an active, public, voluntary commitment to regular home exercise. And by George, they were going to live up to it. Can you see why I said earlier that I was so high on the idea of gathering and using as many testimonials as possible to your product or idea in the business world? A genuine testimonial in your behalf has double-barreled impact. Not only will it strengthen your case with similar influence targets, it will strengthen your case even further with the person who made the testimonial, who will have taken an active, public, voluntary stand on the quality of what you have to offer and who, as a result, will be more likely than before to want to stay in your corner. Finding and publicizing genuine testimonials. If there's a simpler and more powerful technique of instant influence, I can't think of it. Who was that on the phone, hon? Oh, just Janice. Well, what'd she want? She's throwing a Tupperware party at her house next Friday night, and she wants me to come. You didn't accept, did you? Well, yes, I did. Wait a minute. Didn't we decide that we wanted to save Friday nights for going to the movies? Yes, we did, but I just... And didn't you tell me that you didn't like going to Tupperware parties anymore because you got all the containers you need that go when you press on them? And even if you didn't, you could get them cheaper at the store? Yes, but I just A felt And didn't Janice just move all the way across town so that it'll take you 40 minutes to get there and back? Yes, but what could I do? I like Janice. She's a friend. I'm sure it will come as no surprise to you to learn that scientific research has demonstrated over and over that people are substantially more willing to say yes to someone they know and like. The little vignette we just heard shows how this universal principle of human behavior works in one of the most effective compliance settings I know, the Tupperware home party. The power of the Tupperware party comes from a particular arrangement that trades on the friendship liking rule. Despite the entertaining and persuasive salesmanship of the Tupperware representative at the party, the true request to purchase the product does not come from this stranger, it comes from a friend to everyone in the room. The Tupperware representative may physically ask for each party-goer's order all right, but the more psychologically compelling requester is a woman sitting off to the side, smiling, chatting, and serving refreshments. She is the party hostess, 
who has called her friends together for the demonstration in her home and who everyone understands makes a profit from each piece sold at her party. Simple. By providing the hostess with a percentage of the take, the Tupperware company arranges for their customers to buy from and for a friend rather than an unknown salesperson. In this way, the attraction, the warmth, the security, and the obligation of liking and friendship are brought to bear on the sales setting. The results have been remarkable. Of course, all sorts of other influence professionals recognize the pressure to say yes to someone we know and like. Take, for instance, the large number of charity organizations who recruit volunteers to canvas for donations close to their homes. They understand perfectly how much more difficult it is for us to turn down a charity request when it comes from a friend or neighbor. Most of us, however, have to try to engage the principle of liking in a different way. Before making a request, we have to get our influence target to like us. Notice, once again, that the crucial step is what happens before the request is made. Just as establishing an initial context of credibility, or scarcity, or consensus, or commitment changes the way people respond to a request, establishing a context of liking has the very same effect. I was once approached for advice by a friend who was anxious about an upcoming IRS audit. Even though he hadn't done anything wrong in filling out his tax return, he was worried because he hadn't kept the best of records to document his expenses and deductions. Now, I knew him to be an honest guy. With several likable qualities, he was a very fair and generous person. The problem was that the IRS auditor he would be meeting didn't know that. So, we formulated a plan to make those traits visible at the start of his audit session. I remembered that he had once told me that every year since his divorce, he had been voluntarily adding an amount of money to his monthly child support payments to his kids because, as he put it, inflation hits them too. Figuring that this kind of evidence of his inherent integrity and fair-mindedness would be an invaluable point to make in the early stages of the audit, I advised him to start the session by documenting that he was indeed entitled to the deductions he was claiming for his kids. Once in the process, it would naturally come out that he had been sending them more money than he was required by the divorce decree. That would establish the liking context that would serve him well when he got to the more difficult areas of the audit. He called me following his session nearly giddy with the news that the plan had worked like a charm. He said that the initial coolness of the auditor, who turned out to be a woman, melted immediately after she compared the amount specified on his decree with the amount of his child support checks. From that point on, she breezed through the rest of his records, giving him the benefit of the doubt whenever things got sticky. Once more, we can see that it's what you do first that critically affects how people respond to what you present to them later. Some of the best evidence I know for the importance of establishing liking first comes from the story of a man in Detroit, Joe Girard, who specialized in using the liking rule to sell Chevrolets. Every year, for 11 straight years, he won the title of the country's number one car salesman 
averaging over five cars and trucks sold every day he worked. For all his success, the formula he employed was surprisingly simple. It consisted of offering people just two things, a fair price and someone they liked to buy the car from. And that's it, he claimed in a radio interview I once heard. Finding the salesman you like, plus the price, put them both together, and you get a deal. Well, fine. The Joe Girard formula tells us how vital the liking rule is to the influence process, but it doesn't tell us nearly enough. For one thing, it doesn't tell us why customers liked him more than some other salesperson who offered a fair price. There's a crucial and fascinating question that Joe's formula leaves unanswered. Just what are the factors that cause one person to like another person? If we had that answer, we would be a lot closer to understanding how people such as Joe can so successfully arrange to have us like them, and as well, how we might successfully arrange to have others like us. Fortunately, social scientists have been asking the question for decades and their studies have allowed them to identify a number of factors that forcefully and reliably cause liking. From my perspective, three of these factors are most important for an agent of influence to know about. The three factors are similarity, praise, and cooperation. Let's examine how they work one at a time, beginning with similarity. We like people who are like us. And this fact seems to hold true whether the similarity occurs in the area of opinions, personality traits, background, or lifestyle. We can see the proof all around us. On the athletic field, people root for players who share some characteristic with them, like place of birth. In the courtroom, defendants are given more sympathetic treatment from jurors of the same racial or ethnic background. And in the romantic arena, individuals are more likely to feel affection for partners who hold similar attitudes and beliefs. Well, if similarity leads to liking and influence in these areas, you can bet the same holds true in the business world. Insurance company records show that prospects are more likely to buy insurance when the salesperson is like them in age, religion, politics, and even cigarette smoking habits. Many sales training programs teach trainees to connect with the backgrounds and interests of their customers. Automobile salespeople, for example, are often trained to look for evidence of these things while examining a customer's trade-in. If there's camping gear in the trunk, the salesman might be schooled in how to remark later on that he loves to get away from the city and into the wilderness whenever he can. If there are golf balls on the back seat, he might be taught to mention that he hopes the rain will hold off until he can play the round of golf he had scheduled for later in the day. Personally, I don't have any problems with the use of these kinds of similarities as long as they are genuine. I can't see anything wrong with mentioning similarities that are already there as existing features of the situation and that have merely been uncovered by good detective work. The difficulty comes when the similarities are phony ones that have been smuggled into the situation to exploit their psychological impact on the liking process. So, as usual, the question for the agent of influence becomes, how can I arrange my environment to be able to take advantage of this leverage 
in the way that a sleuth of influence would. Here's what I'd recommend. Remember earlier in our discussion of authority, I suggested that before attempting to do business with anyone you hope to influence, that you spend some time in informal conversation, a period of time in which information can be exchanged about one another's backgrounds, interests, educational affiliations, and professional associations. At the time, I said that this kind of conversation would allow you to present in a non-boastful way evidence of your credentials and expertise that are relevant to the upcoming business discussions. What I didn't say at the time is that I think it also provides the chance to get valuable evidence as well. Evidence of the other person's personal history, hobbies, and favorite activities. Think of the liking bond that could be forged between you when you discover that you both lived in the same city for a time, or went to the same university, or belonged to the same national fraternity, or run three miles a day in the mornings, or loved to watch professional basketball or amateur gymnastics or, or old Cary Grant movies on TV. This liking bond can be achieved with a prospective client or a recently hired co-worker or even a new boss. The important thing to remember is that the opportunity to establish the context of mutual liking when it will be most beneficial at the beginning of things is too rare to be missed. Okay, now let's talk about the second major factor that affects liking, praise. Not only is it true that we like those who are like us, we also like those who do like us and who say so. Remember Joe Girard, the world's greatest car salesman, who says that the secret of his success was getting customers to like him? He did something that, on first blush, seems foolish and costly. Each month, he sent every one of his more than 13,000 former customers a holiday greeting card containing a printed message. The holiday greeting changed from month to month, Happy New Year, Happy Valentine's Day, Happy Thanksgiving, and so on. But the message printed inside the card never varied. It read, I like you. There was nothing else on the card, nothing but Joe's name under the statement. I like you. It came in the mail every year, 12 times a year like clockwork. I like you on a printed card that went to 13,000 other people too. Could a statement of liking so impersonal, so obviously designed to sell cars work? Joe Girard thought so, and a man as successful as he was at what he did deserves our attention. Joe understood an important fact about human nature. People are phenomenal suckers for flattery. As a rule, people believe praise and like those who provide it even when it's untrue. For example, in one study done in North Carolina, a flatterer who gave out compliments was liked just as much when the compliments were untrue as when they were true. When seen in this light, the expense of printing and mailing well over 150,000 I like you cards each year seems neither as foolish nor as costly as we might have first thought. Now, because praise can be either sincere or insincere and still work, 
we find ourselves once again with a smuggler versus sleuth choice to make. Unfortunately, many agents of influence are taught the smuggler's approach in this regard. For instance, while doing research for my book on influence, I infiltrated a sales training program for insurance agents where we were told, when we visited a client's home, to comment positively on anything that was prominent. Compliment the lawn, compliment the furniture. If a child walks by, compliment the kid. Well, I suppose that kind of approach will work to a degree, but in the process, it will carry two sizable disadvantages. First, it will carry into the job the distasteful aspect of dishonesty. And we've already discussed the harmful effects that can have on a person's self-esteem and enthusiasm for the job. The second disadvantage is one we haven't considered yet. Although manufacturing a false compliment may make the recipient like you more, it will make you bungle away an even more powerful tool of influence, the chance to like the person you are complimenting. Look at it this way. If you take the time and effort to find just one truly praiseworthy thing to say about the person you want to influence, you will be liked more for it. But in addition, you'll gain the added benefit of liking that individual more. And once the people you're dealing with recognize that you like them, something special happens. Down go the defenses. Down go their cautions about whether they can trust what you say. Why? Because everybody knows that we don't take advantage of the people we like. The same logic applies to real versus fabricated similarities. What you have to remember is that you are susceptible to the same psychological principles as the individuals you're trying to influence. So you're going to like the people in whom you've taken the trouble to locate genuine similarities because people like people who are actually similar to them. And that's going to be true for you too. When I do influence training workshops, I stress the following point. If you smuggle the impact of compliments and similarities into a situation through insincere flattery and fabricated connections, you simultaneously become a smuggler and a bungler of influence. What I recommend instead is that with each person you influence, you sleuth out and comment on at least one real similarity and at least one inherently praiseworthy feature in that individual. Not only will the other person come to like you by virtue of the principles of psychology, you will come to like them by virtue of the same principles. Now, here's the best part. When these folks see that you genuinely like them, they're going to be more trusting and receptive to your influence, and you're going to benefit. What's more, you'll be extra sure not to steer them wrong because these are people you genuinely like and that means they're gonna benefit. The overall result then is the kind of mutually profitable deal that will lead to a long string of profitable deals in the future. Okay, now we're ready to tackle the final major factor that causes liking cooperation. Those who see themselves as working together toward the achievement of a common goal 
are much more favorable and helpful to one another. In fact, the positive power of cooperation can generate liking even among people who start out feeling hostility and dislike for one another. In one study, business executives were separated into two groups and put into situations in which the groups had to compete against one another. They quickly developed intergroup rivalries complete with attitudes of derision, distaste, and disrespect toward members of the other group. Then, the researchers changed one thing about the reward system that the groups worked under. Rather than having to compete against one another to achieve success, the groups had to cooperate to do so. They were given a series of tasks that couldn't be accomplished by either team alone. Instead, the teams had to work together to avoid failure by combining their resources, coordinating their efforts, joining their energies, and agreeing on a workable plan. After they collaborated in this way successfully, a transformation occurred. The negative attitudes toward the opposite group members were replaced with feelings of liking, admiration, and unity. The researchers were able to trace this remarkable turnabout to the moment when the executives had to view one another, even their former opponents, as allies. It was the prominence of common goals and the cooperation required to achieve those goals that finally allowed the one-time rivals to see one another as teammates and friends. As agents of influence, we can certainly take a lesson from the results of that study. For example, good service for a customer often involves creating a climate in which the customer perceives that the two of you have a common goal, the customer's complete satisfaction with your product, and that you are continually working together to reach it. In companies and corporations, certain groups or departments often seem to be regularly in conflict with one another because of the differing functions they perform. For example, research versus development or marketing versus manufacturing. Under these circumstances, it's vital for leaders to take steps to introduce or emphasize in everyone's mind the view of the departments as cooperating partners working toward a larger mutual goal, the success of the overall organization, a goal that is beneficial to everyone. You know, I think there's a kind of irony associated with the components of liking that we've just covered. The factors of similarity, praise, and cooperation are so obvious, so simple, that a lot of times we forget to use them. We fumble them away because our heads are elsewhere, developing some detail or calculating some percentage point of some minor feature of whatever it is we are presenting to the people we want to influence. And in the process, we forget to pay attention to the fundamentals of influence, like establishing a context of liking through the three factors of sincerity, praise, and cooperation. Let's take a look at a customer service situation and at how easy it is for one individual to bungle away the chance to use those three factors and how easy it is for another individual in the same setting to reverse the error and save the day by going back to the fundamentals. The scene is the service counter of a health club as a member approaches and speaks to one of the two staffers behind it. Uh, sorry to bother you. I just locked my car keys in the trunk of my car and my wallet's inside. I don't even have a quarter on me to use the payphone outside to call my wife and, and have her bring my extra set of keys down here. 
I need to use your phone back behind the counter there. Oh, sorry. It's against our policy. Uh, maybe you don't understand. I've been a member here for three years now. I've locked myself out of my car, and I don't have the money to make a call to get my keys. You mean you're not going to let me use your phone? Maybe you don't understand, sir. It's definitely against club policy to make personal calls on this phone. I just got a lecture on it last week from my manager because I let another member use it. Sorry. Uh, I... Just a minute, Kathy. Maybe there's something we can do for Mr. Jones here. Heck, I've locked myself out of my own car a few times. Which one is your car, Mr. Jones? The green Jaguar. Oh, you're the one who owns that new Jaguar? That's a great-looking car. I've always admired it out in the parking lot. Thanks. I love it so far. What's your name, by the way? Alan. I'm glad you like my car, Alan, but what about my phone call? Well, look, we're all part of the same club. We all want it to be run well and for you to be happy with it. So, uh, why don't we do this? Kathy, have you got a quarter in your purse? Why don't you lend it to Mr. Jones, and when he makes his call and gets his wallet, he can pay you back. Sure, I'd be glad to help out that way. Let's see, uh, here you go, Mr. Jones. Thanks, I really appreciate it. I'll mention to the manager how you helped me out. I'd like you to notice something about the conversation we just heard. Until Alan intervened, the exchange was going straight downhill. A longtime club member, Mr. Jones, who had a relatively small problem, had encountered a club employee, Kathy, who felt uncomfortable breaking club rules to help him. You could just feel the conflict snowballing. Mr. Jones was becoming increasingly impatient and angry with Kathy's off-handed, unsympathetic response to his predicament, while Kathy was becoming increasingly defensive and rigid about the need to reject his request because of club policy. That was because neither of them thought of the other's problem as a joint problem. Because both people were feeling annoyed and stressed by the conflict, neither wanted to take the time to like one another or to adopt an attitude of cooperation that would take into account the differing needs of two members of the same organization. Notice, too, that when Alan entered the conversation, it was from the calm of the sidelines. Having not been caught up in the escalating emotions of the exchange, he was able to think more flexibly about the situation, to cast a detective's eye on it, and to recognize that the opportunities for liking and cooperation were right there waiting to be used. So first, he made Mr. Jones feel better by announcing an especially relevant similarity between the two of them. Heck, I've locked myself out of my own car a few times. Then he found an opportunity to introduce a genuine compliment. That's a great-looking car. I've always admired it out in the parking lot. Next, he pointed out that the ultimate goal of all concerned was a common one. We're all part of the same club. We all want it to be run well and for you to be happy with it. Finally, he even arranged for Kathy to lend Mr. Jones a quarter rather than doing so himself. In this way, with Kathy helping Mr. Jones, the two prior antagonists cooperated together successfully, which worked to dissolve any bitterness they felt toward one another and which allowed everyone to part on good terms. The last thing I'd like you to notice about Alan's transformation of the situation is that it took almost no time to accomplish. Even though he changed a looming disaster into a resounding success, even though that success was shared by all concerned, 
because Mr. Jones got to make his phone call, the club got a happy customer, and Kathy and Alan got a good word put in to their manager. Even with all that, the whole thing took Alan only a few seconds to pull off. Now, if that sounds like too much to hope for in your own interactions, don't be too sure. After all, we're dealing with the principles of instant influence. So there you have them. Reciprocity, scarcity, authority, consensus, commitment, and consistency and liking. The six universal principles of influence. Practice these principles of influence and you'll notice how much easier it is to ask for and receive approval, cooperation, and compliance in any business situation. When you harness the effective and ethical powers of instant influence, your company, customers, co-workers, and employees will all benefit, and so will your career. If you would like information on any of the other Dartnell Audio products, call us toll-free at 1-800-621-5463.